Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Recorded live. What is up, everybody? Welcome to Travis and, well, a whole lot of other people's drunken horror adventures, even if they're not quite drunk. We've got Jer on the line from North Carolina. What's going on, buddy? Going on, Travis. Good to be here. Uh, not drinking tonight, but fully prepared. Have all my lists ready to go, so let's have a good time from 9 to 11 tonight. You are my Vic for the night, so you you have been deemed the Vic of the show uh, I think you can. I think you can carry the torch just fine, you know, because you might actually know what's going on. Uh, Vic, I'm not sure, always does know what's going on. But also joining us uh, from the West Craven Tribute Show, if everybody remembers that one, is uh, Blake. What's going on, Blake? Uh, not much, brother. How's it going? Well, it's going well. You know, we haven't done a a horror list since we did the top ten summer horror movies back in September of last year, you know, wrapping up the summer. And now we're heading into the Halloween season a year later. Um, So we figure, you know, why not do three lists all at once? We'll do three top five lists, uh, have some other bullshit and banner like we usually do. And, um, you know, Jer, since you're uh, doing the honors tonight on the hosting, which list do you want to start out with? Uh, I think earlier in the week we talked about saving Survivor Girls for last. I think that's a perfect idea. So let's hold on to that one. And Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't do, like, Mask and then Survivor Girls right in a row. Let's start off with the Stephen King list, I think. All right, Jared. So with the Stephen King list and, you know, everybody, anybody who calls in, you can do so. I don't know how much room we have on the line, but it's 724-444-7444. And, of course, the call ID is on the link, so you can just enter that call ID, press pound, and then press one pound, and you'll get in. But anyway, uh, so if you got your list ready for Stephen King, Jer, I just want your number five. So everybody get their number five ready, and we'll all do our number five. I've even got Vic's number five loaded. So, Jer, you go first and, you know, explain yourself, and then, Blake, you can go after that. All right, cool, yeah, and, and like Travis did say quickly before we move on, I want to mention we do have a limited number of lines uh, through our gracious host here, Talk Shoe, but uh, I'm keeping an eye on that, and if you want to call in for maybe like five or ten minutes, uh, you know, three or four minutes, whatever the case is, we'll get you in here, and you can give us your uh, opinion on what we're talking about here, whether you like it or whether you don't, and uh, we'll get you off the line and get somebody else in here. Let's have this be interactive and See what everybody thinks, but I'm going to go ahead and go with my number five, top five Stephen King horror films, and my number five is Misery. Very good. Misery, I think it's, uh, you know, know, I don't even think people really realize, like maybe general public, that that's a Stephen King one because it doesn't have monsters and things like that, but as far as Stephen King movies or books go, it's up there with one of the most disturbing. I remember seeing it as a kid. It fucked with me. Blake, you know, what about you before you start with your number five? I love Misery. I um, I thought it was great. I did see a wild card in uh, 
Cassie Bates, because I had seen her in a lot of other films prior to that, like My Best Friend is a Vampire, and a lot of more lighter-hearted uh, fare. But to see that turn of hers as that evil, just psychopath Annie Wilkes, I don't think they could have picked a better a better actress to, to lead that role. She was fantastic and totally, totally believable. Totally. If they were to ever remake that, I don't know that they could ever replace her. It's kind of like, well, we've talked about it, like Robert Englund is Freddy. It's just a role that you cannot fill. I agree. All right, Blake, what's your number five? My number five actually is not one a lot of people have seen. My number five is actually one of my favorites. It's called The Dark Half. Oh, I own that, as a matter of fact. I'm jealous. I don't. I've been looking and looking and looking, and I can't find a copy. I've even went uh, Amazon hunting, but um, I can't find it. I can't find a copy. But I like that one because it's dark. It doesn't deal with a whole lot of the the monster thing, but it's got a lot more of the psychological aspect, the whole Dad Beaumont, George Stark thing. It, it's very it's very disturbing, and, and it's just, it, I don't know, man. It makes you feel like you're on like a, I don't know, like maybe a, a bad a bad drunk, maybe, you know. You're like, what in the hell is happening here? I don't quite get it. It's just very disconcerting. It's real spacey and stuff, and I just, it's really dark, and it's one of the few of his that I like that uh, most people don't like because it doesn't really have monsters and stuff in it. But it's, it's a good one. It's an all-star cast, too, which doesn't doesn't hurt. <laughs> I should elaborate for everybody. You know, it was on the link on the website, but Green Mile, Stand By Me, Shawshank Redemption, all get eliminated. They're just... It's not even fair to list them with all the other Stephen King movies because they're such cinematic classics that it's not even fair to talk about those. But, you know, these are the horror portion. Misery, you can debate. I think it's pretty horrific. (laughs) Personally, I think it's as horrific as any of the Stephen King ones. So we're all on the same page there. Now, Vic's number five is Cujo. Uh, My personal opinion, I think Cujo's slightly overrated. Not a bad movie by any means. Such a slow burn, though, and I saw it late in life. I, I didn't see the whole thing until, hell, I'll be honest with you guys, uh, until a couple of years ago, and I was just like, so pretty much the whole movie takes place in a car with a dog outside the car. But don't get me wrong, it does have some tension and things like that. Dee Wallace was good, as she usually is. The fucking dog was pretty vicious. Uh, I mean, the movie's good. But Vic's got it at number five. I'll be honest with you guys, uh, you know, before I even get through my, you know, to my number five, I didn't have Cujo in my top five, so we'll figure out if you guys do here shortly, but uh, I guess I'll go ahead and go with my number five now that uh, I have Vix uh, out and about, but let me let me get to my list here because I kind of got to flip back and forth here, but yeah, nothing against Cujo, I just don't have it quite in my top five. Uh, here's one that I don't know if other people are going to have in their top five, and it's based on a Stephen King short story, and that's 1408. I think 1408's underrated. I saw it at the theaters. It scared the shit out of me at the theaters because it had a lot of things that affected me. doesn't scare me anymore, but I still enjoy it. Uh, I like that there's kind of a couple of different endings on them, and I think all of them work. I think John Cusack did a good job. I think 1408's a good movie. What do you guys think? Yeah, I'll go ahead and jump in here real quick, uh, and then we'll get Blake's opinion. Uh, I'm not as into the ghost stories uh, as you know, uh, the slashers and the, and mm-hmm. the psychological thrillers and things, uh, you know, we're, we're all about voting on the indie power rankings and things like that. So I've got my honorable mentions and 1408, uh, and Cujo as well, are both honorable mentions, not to give away too much of my list that we haven't revealed yet, but, uh, they were definitely in there. 
uh, but not quite in my top five. Like you said, John Cusack did a great job uh, in this movie, and you know other people. Tony Shalhoub was in there, and uh, not not a bad movie at all, but but not in my top five. And, and Blake, without giving away whether it's in your top five or not, or if you want to, it's, it's really up to you. But what do you think of fourteen oh eight? Fourteen oh eight is one that's underrated. It's um, I think what got it for a lot of people is. The casting of, of John Cusack, he's so mainstream, and he does things that aren't, I mean, horror. Like, I've got on one of his first movies, and it's a 16 Candles, you know, one of his earlier, one of his earliest ones, and uh, not horror at all. But, I mean, he just, he's so not attached to the horror thing. It's very much like, I feel the same way about George Clooney and uh, From Dust Till Dawn. It's just like, yeah, he was good, but it's not, not who I would have picked. But then now that you've seen it, it's sort of become this seamless piece of, you know, celluloid. So, I mean, I love John Cusack. I just, I didn't pick him for that role. I did see it. I watched it twice. The first time I was biased. The second time I tried not to be. And I thought it was good. But I think a lot of people tend to gravitate more towards the ghost stories in their listing of any kind of horror film. And, and I tend to to go, you know, left-wing and go for the slashers and the psychological terror and more towards that grounded in a little bit more reality. Yeah, and one one other thing I do want to touch on about 1408 is, um, dude, how much would you guys love to do his job? Go to different haunted houses and write whether, you know, how scary it was, give it a skull rating. How badass would that be? I would do anything to do that job. Oh, man, that would be just amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, we've got Waverly Hills Sanitarium where I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I mean, and as far as haunted uh, attractions, that's, that's kind of the thing in Kentucky, and uh, you know, one of these days I'll tell my ghost story again about it. That you know, I may or may not have seen something once upon a time. But you know, I, I like ghost stories. I, they're not my favorite thing in the world, but I do love it. And you know, I think they're a perfect Halloween mix. So we're getting into October here shortly. But um, Jer, you are next in line to do your number four in the Stephen King horror movies top five. Okay, uh, my number four, I'm just going to get right into it, is um, the original Carrie, number four. Mm. All right, Carrie, the original was Sissy Spacek. Uh, she is a scary bitch, I just have to say. I, I, and that was part of the problem with the remake for me, the newest remake, is that I just didn't think, you know, Chloe, I, she didn't seem like a loser to me, and she never really matched that role. I like her but I didn't think she matched that role. She didn't look like somebody that's going to get picked on and be as weird as uh, Sissy Spacek was in the role. What do you think, Blake? I I don't think I saw the remake. I like the original. I think Sissy Spacek was perfect, but if they were going to, if it was left up to me with the casting of that, I probably would have went with Sarah Butler, who played uh, Jennifer Hills in the remake of I Still in Your Grave. She seems to fit more that losery kind of social introvert type, you know, that seems to be her milieu. She seems to be good at that. So I would have chosen her personally. Chloe Moretz is pretty. She's just like, I'm so pretty, you know, it's just it's too pretty. <laughs> yep, yep, that's what it was. And Jerry, what about you? Uh two things. Talk about number one, talk about the original and then talk about if you got to see the remake. Yeah, well it's like y'all said and I'm gonna be a little different here. Uh you know, it's like y'all said, a Sissy Spacek of course killed the role in the original. Uh it's only at number four for me because I actually really enjoyed the remake. Uh, you know, you bring up a good point about Chloe Grace Moretz and, and her not really fitting into the, the outcast loser role, but, 
you know, I really enjoyed the remake. Uh, when I, when I watch a remake, I kind of look basically go into it just hoping it doesn't suck. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's the general rule, and, and I went into that movie hoping it didn't suck, and, and I I was really impressed. I think maybe I need to watch it again and really compare it against the original, but. Uh, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that the the remake had a little bit of bearing on why Carrie is not higher in my top five because I really enjoy the story of Carrie, and, and it probably would be a little higher for me. But uh, uh, it ends up at number four. Fair enough. And you know, I may blow your guys' minds with this, but I think Carrie's a little bit overrated, just like Cujo. I, I don't think I think the original is such a slow burn, just kind of like Cujo. And I realize it's a sign of the times. I watched it as a kid. I never got too big into it. I think it's a great story. I just I don't have it in my top five. I know that's hard to believe. Obviously, I considered it. It's a good movie. For me, it's not a great movie, and I think it gets a little more hype than, than maybe some of the movies that deserve it do. But, you know, again, it did influence a lot of things, including Friday the 13th Part 7. Now we get into Vic's number four. And his number four is Pet Cemetery, And I think most people, whether they have Pet Cemetery in their top five one way or another, I think all of us have had some sort of effect from Pet Cemetery. So I'm going to hold off on some Pet Cemetery thoughts because I think at least one of us will have Pet Cemetery in our top five beyond just Vic. So he's got it at number four, uh, and they're remaking Pet Cemetery, So that will be interesting to see if it can either, you know, be like the book a little bit more, whatever the case may be. My number four and we can discuss this however you want to do it, I've got Stephen King's It at number four, and for uh, a few reasons. Number one, if Tim Curry wasn't in the role, then it probably wouldn't have cracked my top five or even sniffed it, but Tim Curry as Pennywise is one of the most iconic characters of all time. He made that movie, period, had no problem with all the big-name actors and things like that, but they had to dumb it down for TV. It's a long-ass movie. The book's obviously very long. You know, This was clearly not as good as the book, but the fact that Pennywise was played by Tim Curry is what leaves a lasting effect on me. And it, it just had to be in the top five for me because, I mean, Tim Curry's one of the reasons why people are fucking scared of clowns. Not me, but I know a lot of people that are. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts on that? Uh, go ahead, Blake. I'll, I'll pick up the, the end here. Well, much obliged, sir. I appreciate that. I was going to wait for you, but uh, okay. Uh, You know, I really think, I think what it is, to to be funny, put a spin on it, British people, people with British accents are scary. I mean, Tim Tim Curry, you know, Vincent Price, you know, they all have this, uh, man, it's just British, British accents are scary. I mean, British, British, you know, British horror is scary and all that stuff goes back to Frankenstein, you know, and, you know, all those other things. But, um, I think, like you said, uh, Travis, that it was like he made that role. I compare him a lot to uh, to Robert England, you know, mm-hmm. as far as Freddy Krueger goes, because I, I really, as much as I like to see a legacy continue, I can't think of anybody that could fill Tim Curry's shoes in that role. I know in the remake they've got that kid who's the boy in We're the Millers, and he's just, that's who they casted as Pennywise, as far as I, last, last rumor mill that I dipped into, and I was like, man, the kid, I mean, he might be a wild card, you know, I don't know, but Tim Curry just, he had that, that ardor about himself. He was a, you know, classically trained Shakespearean actor, veteran at the time, you know, he did Rock and Horry Picture Show, which was like a huge thing, it still is, you know, 40-some-odd years later, it's still huge and people love it. But he was seasoned, and I think age, getting somebody older to play in would probably have been a better, a better thing, you know. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I actually like the kid uh, who was, I thought he was hilarious in his comedic role so far, but 
Uh, that's a that's a great point. Uh, you know, one that I was going to make as well. I just don't know if that age difference and him appearing younger is going to make him uh, a little less creepy. And, and you know, if you want to have a good remake of this great movie or t- you know mini series, whatever you want to call it, uh, you do have to have a great Pennywise. And and I think we can. You know, I'm not going to go into like I said about remakes earlier. Just quickly before we move on, I'm not going to go into this movie when I see the remake of it uh, thinking, okay, this Pennywise is going to be as good as Tim Curry. I think you'd be setting yourself up for disappointment. But he has to do a, a, a amiable job, I think, for the movie to be even worth watching. I, I think they're, I think they're going to go heavier on the makeup, which would probably be a good idea because I don't think anybody can be as creepy as Tim Curry with his minimal makeup. And I think they need to amp up the gore for sure. Um and, you know, one last thing on Tim Curry here and, and, and you know, Stephen King's It uh, is that, you know, he had just come off doing the movie Legend where he had all the facial prosthetics and everything. And I, I, people may know this, but, you know, th- they approached him and they said, you know, we want you to do this and this role of Pennywise. And he was like, I just, you know, I don't really want to do it. I've got to wear all the shit. And he's like, how about I play it without all the facial prosthetics that you guys want me to wear? And they figured that was way scarier once he did the screen test or whatever. So just something to tell you about how awesome Tim Curry was in the role. And he will, I think, really go down in history as right up there, even with only one movie under his belt, you know, in the role, right up there with Jason, Freddy, all the rest. He is in our subconscious, just like all these other guys, without, you know, ten movies under his belt, didn't need them. He was effective enough, so that's you know I think I think we can all agree on that. But we'll go to number three now. And Jerry, you are the man. You're up. All right. Uh, I guess we just discussed a lot of what we're going to discuss. Uh, my number three actually is it. Uh, so <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I wasn't quite sure. As I said earlier, you know, it was originally a TV miniseries. I wasn't sure if I was going to get dinged on technicality there or not, but. Uh, pretty much pretty much said everything I wanted to say about it with it being your number four. But, uh, you know, TV series, miniseries or movie or whatever the case may be, I just really, really enjoyed it. thought it was really creepy. And like you said, uh, it's a major reason that, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, including my uh, stepdaughters, are afraid of clowns, and they haven't even seen Pennywise until I showed them a picture because they're, they're not old enough to see the movie yet. But, uh, you know, I hope one day to show it to them and scare the living shit out of them. So. <laughs> um, I, I burned it into the subconscious of my stepchildren, and, like, they're not even scared of Pennywise now because I probably, like, talked... I said beep, beep, Richie too many times and made all the jokes that Pennywise made. And before I get into Blake's number three, I'm just going to go ahead and throw out Vic's. Jer, you and Vic are on the same page. He's got it at number three also. All right. So you took over the role nicely tonight. Uh, <laughs> Blake, you're up. Are we on number three here? Yes, sir. All right. Well, first before I say that, I will do one more thing, you know, to, towards it. Even though it was made for TV, it's still scary, and I think that's a testament to how they filmed it and the way they wrote the script. Because as edited and done for TV as it is, it's still, oh, when I saw it when I was five or six, it scared the living shit out of me. I'm telling you, it really did. You know, we all slowed down here, Joyce. You know, that whole, yes. that whole yeah, thing. Point. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> hey, props to Tommy Lee Wallace, too, the director. People don't think about him, but, you know, Halloween 3 director, he comes back for it and did a hell of a job, I thought. He did. And um, actually, my number three is probably not anybody else's number three, but I'm a, I'm a diehard 
for my for my um for my Freddie. So I put in Toby Hooper's The Mangler, which is based on a Stephen King short story from a, a compilation of his called uh, Notes from a Buick Eight. So it's a uh, very well done. It was a low budget. It didn't even make back its budget. It was considered a financial disappointment, but I think it was a precursor to Saw and some of these, you know, later uh, flesh, you know, sacrifice type uh, type films. Very scary, very gory. And I've got the cut shows, the unedited cuts, and I was like, there would have been no way the NCAA would have let that uncut version go into the theater in 1995. There would have been no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just funny how things change with that. By the way, Blake, it just makes me that much more happy that you've come on with us just because of the diversity of your list. Jer, Vic, and I are all of the same mindset almost on some level, but it's cool to have somebody else with a diverse opinion on that. So thank you. And then I will throw out my number three now. Uh, Vic and I just have them crossed up. I have Pet Cemetery at number three. And let, let me get into Pet Cemetery a little bit. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, don't like it that much because maybe the book's better and, you know, shit, you're always going to get that. And to be honest with you, I don't have a whole lot of time to read an entire book. So, you know, for me, it's the movie. And I watched Pet Cemetery as a kid, just like a lot of these movies. And there was a certain part in the movie, Pet Cemetery, that fucked me up really bad, like scarier than any of these movies to me. And, it, it was a part that, like, I had to almost leave the room as a kid. I didn't want to watch it because I would watch this movie a lot. Like, I think it would come on USA, and I would see it on TV a lot. And uh, it was the part where uh, Zelda, the sister, she's just, like, all fucking nasty looking, and she turns around, and she's talking to her little sister. That shit, oh, it weirded me out as a kid. And then as an adult, I realized why, because Zelda was played by a man. So even then, I didn't really want to deal with a tranny, I guess. I don't know. But, no, Pet Cemetery, I thought it was really good. I still do to this day. I like everybody in that movie. And, yes, the book's great. I realize that. The audio book's even good if you guys can track that down. It's really good. But I love Pet Cemetery. Awesome story and one of the creepiest Stephen King uh, stories there is. True. I agree. I'll jump, I'll jump in real quick with the last two that you guys have thrown out. Uh, actually, both of those are on my honorable mention list. Didn't quite make it in my top five. Uh, you know, I'll echo what Travis said about your list and bring up some great points just 20 minutes into this show, Blake. Uh, you know, I, I wholeheartedly agree that The Mangler was really, uh, you know, at the forefront, one of the really first torture horror-type movies like Saw, and, and I really enjoyed The Mangler as well. Uh, it was, you know, really close to knocking misery out of my top five. Uh, it's actually my first honorable mention, so... Uh, glad to see that that made somebody's top five list. Uh, it really deserves the props. And, you know, of course, Tobey Hooper, one of the uh, horror icons, in my opinion, so you got to give him props for that. But um, And then Pet Cemetery also was on my honorable mentions as well. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that. I think I did enjoy the book more, uh, which is a point you brought up, Travis, uh, so it didn't make my list. And I'm not a big Edward Furlong guy either, so uh, I don't know something about him, but... Uh, yeah. But he's in the second one. He's not in the first one. Oh, that's that's true. That's true. Okay. Uh, so maybe I need to go back and see the first one again if I can find it. Uh, yes, sir. Somewhere to, to check out. Uh, maybe you just uh, made me take a second look at it. But, uh, we'll have to see how that goes. Good man. Well, I mean, you know, I think we all have some sort of respect for Pet Cemetery, whether it's in your top five or not. I mean, the story itself, 
I think it translated pretty well to film. It may not have been perfect. Of course, we could have used some other things in it, but I, I still love it, and it's a childhood thing for me. I, I don't know if this is bias on my part, but I really still think it's scary to this day. Certain parts of it, you know, uh, I think can still hold up to this day, but, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I think... Go ahead, Blake. Well, as far as Pet Cemetery goes, I agree with you. It holds up fairly well today. There are a couple of scenes that bother me, but it's only since I've had kids. The scene with, you know, little little one there, uh, what was it, Gage, uh, played by Victor yeah. Hughes, who went on to do West Craven's New Nightmare. You know, he was... Uh, yes, sir. That, but, I mean, he watching him get hit by, you know, just even the bloody shoe, the artful way they did it, it makes me cry because if something happened to my kid like that, I'd never be Dude, able to me too. forgive myself. I, but, but I will 100%. say this, my wife gets a kick out of me doing uh, Fred Gwynn's impression, you know. Like, I walk here sometimes and I'll be like, Lois, sometimes dead is better. You know, I do that there all the time, and it, it freaks her out. <laughs> Dude, it's so good. It is so good. And, yeah, I mean, like, I agree with that. And, by the way, I'm sure you guys were probably somehow affected by the uh, the ankle slash where it dude takes the scalpel yeah. to the ankle. Poor Judd. He got uh, fucked up. That was gross. <laughs> Ooh. That, that makes my skin crawl. But uh, it's good stuff. Um, all right, man. So, Jerry, you uh, get to uh, kick us off with their number two, the cream of the crop here. Yeah, this is a perfect intro, I think, uh, with the way you enjoy Pet Cemetery, uh from being a youngster. Uh, my number two is a movie that I watched when I was around eight years old. Uh, my brother was probably about 14 watching it. And uh just always really creeped me out, uh, and that's Children of the Corn. Hmm. Uh, you know, there's... There's probably 14 or 44 sequels to this movie, and I would, yeah. watch, yeah. I would still watch a 45th one just because the creepy-ass children with the names like Hebediah and Zachariah, and they were just so creepy, and it was so, you know, it wasn't really that far of a departure from real life. You know, it, these kids that were, uh, you know, terrorizing this little town and... and I just love it. Children of the Corn something that I can sit down and watch to this day. I love it. So I, I'm going to blow your mind with this, Jer. Um, you know, Madman Pondo thinks that's like the maybe the worst horror movie of all time. <laughs> and uh, Pondo's a huge horror fan. Um, yes, I know. Now, I, I fall somewhere in between there. I think it's not nearly as bad as Pondo says, but I don't love the movie either. Um, but I do I do like it. I think the opening scene is one of the best in any horror movie ever where the kids go ape shit and just kill everybody in that diner or whatever. That's pretty crazy. Um, I, I like it. I mean, it's fine. It's kind of like Carrie and Cujo. It doesn't do a whole lot for me. But, you know, there is a classic thing to it. And, I mean, it's Children of the Corn. People know what Children of the Corn is. You, you can't just ignore it, and I don't think it deserves to be ignored. So, I mean, for sure, it deserves a mention, uh, whether it's in your top five or not, just like that cemetery. So, uh, Blake, what do you think? I live in Adams, Tennessee, and I'm surrounded by cornfields and stuff, and my wife and I can't drive by any of that stuff without one of us hollering. Now, Outlander, we can't do it. But I'll tell you this. I mean, it was very, It was very scary. Um, I didn't see the first Children of the Corn until I was, well, hell, I was damn near, I was damn near 21 when I saw it. It was just one of those that was off my, off my radar for some time, and uh, I think I had seen the third or fourth one first, and it was, it was okay, and like uh, Jared said, we're up to like 
you know, like eight or ten or twelve of these damn things now, and I, I probably would still sit down and and watch them. But I really think that in the school system, that's kind of happening now because we're taking away capital punishment and the ability to like punish our kids in school and like reprimand them, and pretty soon they'll be like, you can't even sneeze around a kid without them <laughs> suing you for you know personal space infringement or some shit. <laughs> Good Lord, we could do a whole show on that shit. You know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, well, I'll go ahead and throw out Vic's number two, and then we'll head into Blake's. Um, um, so uh, the number two for Vic is Misery. So, I mean, we already talked about Misery. Obviously, Vic had a, the same type of feelings as we did about it, but even more strongly. And, you know, guys, I didn't even get to throw this out. I remember watching that for the first time as a kid. You know, I was watching it with my brother and some friends, and, I remember, like, being so young whenever I watched it that my brother's friend kind of explained it to me like this. And I wasn't a Michael Jordan fan, but it was still a good explanation. What if Michael Jordan had been in a car wreck, you know, and, and you know, like, you're his biggest fan? And that's pretty much what Kathy Bates' role was, is that it was like that. So it was, like, kind of making me understand the celebrity level of her craziness towards this guy. So, I mean, it, it was... It's a fucked up movie, and Vic's right. I mean, you know, guys, I'm going to tell you this right now. I don't have Misery in my top five. I think I think it's almost an unfair snub, but I think maybe, you know, uh, I think part of it for Misery is it's a hard rewatch for me because it's so uncomfortable to watch. I mean, not like torture porn or anything, but it irks me so bad, like not in a bad way, but to the point where, like, I want to strangle Kathy Bates so bad. Yeah. <laughs> so nothing bad to say about it. Um, but anyway, yeah, go, go ahead. Uh, Blake, you are up with your number two, sir. I will say, uh, my number four, we didn't mention, we didn't get around to me for number four, I don't think, but my number four was Misery. I, I debated on oh, whether to put okay. there because uh, we already talked about it. It's, fine, it's totally fine. But uh, my number two is probably one of my second favorites of his, and it's based, off of a, it's based off a short story that I just read for the first time this year. The short story is called Cycle of the Werewolf, but the film is called Silver Bullet, and it's got three and it's just so, so good. It is one of the only Stephen King books I've seen translated to screen that is damn near 100% exact to the novel, to the book. It's 100%. Underrated, too. Absolutely. And, and Everett McGill, you know, he was in uh, People Under the Stairs as Daddy, you know, the the white, you know, uh, owner of the, uh, the house where, you know, the Fool and all those kids underneath mm-hmm. the cellar were. And he, he does such a great, he's so good at playing bad. He is so good at playing bad. And seeing him play bad, a, a, a pastor, a, a reverend, seeing him be a reverend and be a werewolf and be bad, it was just, it was delightful. I, I loved that movie. And just recently, my wife bought me five of five, five pack of his films, and that was in there. And I will tell you that the house was rocking that night because I was so excited to have that because I've looked for years and couldn't find it anywhere. And I finally got it. You know, and I was so excited to, to rewatch it. Something about the whole idea of being uh, a kid with disabilities, Marty Coleslaw there, you know, being um, paralyzed and having to face this monster that's got full use of its limbs and, and it can hide in plain view as a person. There's something about the triumph of someone with a disability over something that really doesn't have a disability. You know, it, it's something about that just sticks with me today, and it's one of my favorites. I actually fought hard on whether to put it at number one or not, so... So I, uh, Silver Bullet, it's an honorable mention for me also. It was one that, I mean, pushed. It was my number one honorable mention, to be honest with you. Misery was my number two. Uh, I love Silver Bullet. 
Uh, I saw it when I was about 16 or seven, no, let's see, 17 maybe. I, I had uh, I was watching it with an ex-girlfriend. I had never seen the movie before, and she just had the tape or something. And I was like, this movie's the shit. Why have I never heard of this? And, you know, I'm with you. The, uh, the guy who plays the pastor, uh, the priest, uh, he plays the full of shit bad guy very well. Um, but, yeah, that movie's very good. And for anybody who hasn't seen Silver Bullet for whatever reason, because it's buried among all the S- Stephen King movies, go out and watch it. Go find it. It's worth it. You can find it for 5 bucks in Walmart or something like that. Um, it, it, Blake's right. It, it's a great movie. Even though it's not in my top five, that is no knock on the movie. One of the better werewolf movies, too. It didn't need all sorts of crazy transformations and effects. It's just damn good. Um, so, yeah, you all... Favorite, the music score, whenever the wolf change would happen, and, and that sense of tension it built would harken back to the Chris Young and, and Charlie Clouser and, you know, a John Carpenter. It had that kind of resonating score. And as a musician, and that's my past, you know, I also look into that very heavily, too, because you can have a great movie with a really shitty soundtrack. Look at all the porn from the 70s and, and 80s. Terrible music. Terrible music. Yeah, a lot of them. Yeah, absolutely. And and Corey Haim's in this, and also Gary Busick. Uh, Gary Busick is in this too. So, uh, yeah, everybody check that out if you haven't seen it. It's kind of my Fourth of July horror movie. You know that uh, because you know they have that Fourth of July festival. So I've got everything that relates to a, a certain time of year, and that's my Fourth of July one. So. All right. Uh, well, I'm going to admit right quick before we move on to being one of the people it. that hasn't seen this. Yeah. Well, um, Check and, it out, uh, man. Silver you know, Possibly my closed mindedness with, you know, as I said, I have my certain likes and dislikes in horror, and I'm not really big on the, the monster movies, the werewolves, the mummies, the, except for a certain few. But, uh, you know, definitely uh, respect my fellow panelists' opinions here, and I think that's one I'll be trying to check out. Uh, I'm actually looking here, and it looks like the full movie's available online to check out, so I'll have to be watching that maybe. Uh, here soon, and I'll let y'all know in a future episode what I thought. You're always welcome to come back on. Same for Blake. Uh, the only time that I, you know, like, shield anybody is when I'm trying to complete an interview. But, you know, no, anytime we have an open discussion, the lines are open. So, yeah, you guys are always welcome. But, yeah, uh, Jared, it's not your typical werewolf movie in terms of, you know, it's not some lumbering around goofy thing going on. I think it's I think it's really good. I don't even know how to put It's almost like a serial killer movie where it's a werewolf instead. Would you agree with that, Blake? I would, and the reason I would is because of the the camera angles, especially. They do a close up several times on the eye of the werewolf, and you can still see that human understanding in it, and that makes it even scarier that it's a human has become a monster, but he still has his human urges inside, and and it just it's. You could just see the emotion, and yes, it's one of the, the better werewolf movies, a side bit of trivia, because that's what I'm known for. Uh, the book was illustrated by Bernie Wrightson, who did a lot of the illustrations on uh, Swamp Thing, the comic book series Swamp Thing from DC Comics, and uh, the book is very good. Jared, it's very short, less than 100 pages, quick read, great black and white graphics, but if you read the book and like the book, you'll love the movie. I don't know what you should do first, but they're very close. So even if you don't read it and only watch it, you're... I got to tell you guys the Swamp Thing story real quick. Uh, You know, since Blake, last time we talked, we did the Wes Craven show and all that. I forgot to tell you, uh, I don't know if I ever told the story on the air, but my wife got me to go see the movie, or the uh, play Pippin, right? Because she got free tickets. I'm like, all right, fuck, this is going to be horrible. 
I'll just deal with it. It's one of those things you just have to grin and bear and deal with. And I'm watching it, and I'm like, this chick on stage looks familiar. She looks really familiar. And who is it? Adrian Barbeau. So I got to watch her live in a in a in a play. So it was pretty interesting, you know, Adrian Barbeau from Swamp Thing, The Fog, and all sorts of other stuff. But I, I just wanted to throw that out there. She's a very personal actress. You know, she actually did the voice of Catwoman in the Batman animated uh, series back in the early 90s. She was you know, Catwoman's voice. Very good actress. Very good. She was also in Creepshow, another great horror trilogy directed by uh, George Romero, who did The Dark Half and, you know, Night of the Living Dead and all that. It's just amazing how all these uh, all these things connect like that. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, it's one we haven't brought up yet. My number two is one that nobody's talked about yet, and it is... The Mist. I love The Mist. I think the, the the movie is amazing, and for those of you who haven't seen it, I will not give away the ending. However, if you have not seen it, go see it. The ending of the movie is so entirely fucked up that even Stephen King himself had to say, I didn't even have the balls to do something like that, so I tip my hat to uh, you know Frank Darabont. I, I think that movie's great. I think The Mist you know, again, another short story is just amazing. I think it is fantastic. I think you know, for quote-unquote monster movies, it is awesome. It seems like an end-of-the-world type of deal. I love apocalyptic-type movies. I, that movie for me is, I have to watch that every year. I think it's great. It also has a sense of dread like certain movies I've never seen before. So, I mean, I'm I'm probably the only person that has the missed in my top five, but I have it at number two because I love it that much, and I think it's seriously that good, too. Yeah, I really enjoyed The Mist. Uh, like you said, good movie, good ending. Uh, I really like the story of the movie. And, um, you know, as you said, Frank Darabont uh, and being involved with the Stephen King's story is uh, just makes for a, for a really good movie. I've actually seen that one a couple of times now and really enjoy it. So not in my top five, but definitely one that uh, I would uh, highly encourage anybody to check out if they haven't seen it. Yeah, I got to be the diverse one this time. What about you, Blake? What do you think of The Mist? I like The Mist. It didn't make my top five, but that's but that's because there was, it was so hard to, to sit down and do this list. I thought, man, I'm going to have to like meet Travis in person and like, talk bad to him because this is, this, this is horrible having to narrow it down because it literally was hard. I've been narrowing this. I started yeah. this list while I was on my honeymoon, okay? I was in Florida, <laughs> and I was like, damn, damn it, this list right here is going to kill me. But I really do think... Frank Darabont, like Jared said, uh, mixed with a Stephen, you know Stephen King. You know, check it out. We got the Green Mile, we've got the Shawshank Redemption, we have the Mist, and then one of the first scri- uh, scripts and screen plays that Frank Darabont did was for the third Night on Elm Street movie, which he did with um, Chuck Russell, who went on to do The Mask and some of those other films. And it's just like his his career has been so prolific. He's involved in, like, horror a lot, and he doesn't seem to mind. So many people worry about being typecast, and he, he revels in the shit. He loves it. He, he makes money, too. It's gangbusters at the uh, at the theaters, man. It totally is. And I have to say, I think as soon as he left The Walking Dead, it kind of dropped a little bit in quality. And I know a lot of people still like it, and that's fine, but I liked it better when he was in charge of it. But that's just me. I, I, although, I'll be honest, I haven't watched like the last season or so, so I can't tell you guys much about that. But I can't um, either. <laughs> yeah, so that's me. But that's me. And Jer, you get to be the man. You get to be the man to give away your first to be the first uh, number one given out. So go ahead. All right. 
right, I'll go ahead and uh, get into it. And uh, diversity, and uh, I guess would not be the 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 thing here with my number one because I think this one's pretty hard to argue with. Uh, not only one of my favorite uh, Stephen King horrors, but one of my favorite horrors ever. Um, just feel a kinship with this movie, being a writer for several years or, or a struggling writer. Uh, it's uh, Jack Torrance in The Shining. Derek, I want you to elaborate on something. You you say you're not a big ghost story fan, but on some level, isn't The Shining a ghost story? Uh, it is. Uh, that that's a fair point to make, and this might be an exception to the rule. Uh, I feel like this there's a lot of psychology, and and you know, obviously he loses his shit in this movie, and uh, you know, that might be what appeals to me more than anything. And like I said, the writing aspect of it as well, but. There's definitely a paranormal ghost type of uh, feel to this movie, and, and as I said, that my only response is that it could be an exception to the rule. I just think this movie is so well done, and so, you know, with all the, the great parts that, that you hear people quote, uh, but, you know, really, this movie is so simple, you know, about a writer and his family who just go to this, you know, this house and... You know, it, there's not some great big plot with blowing up stuff and, you know, all all this, but uh, there's just some kind of simple, you know, uh, greatness to the movie The Shining. And, uh, you know, it might be one of my favorite movies ever, you know, not just hard uh, to restrict it to that. So uh, Stanley Kubrick, Stephen King, uh, you talk about Darabont and King, you just got another uh, great pairing there, director and writer. So uh, I can't say enough good things about this, and it may be a little, uh, you know, off my uh, general uh, liking, like you said. But uh, it's at number one, and I wouldn't have put any other movie from Stephen King right at this number. All right, so uh, I'm going to do things a little bit out of order, real quick, because I- I'm most interested in hearing what Blake's number one is. So I'm going to save him for last. Okay, Vic agrees with you, Jer. He has The Shining at number one also. And, uh, Jer, I have to say, I have The Shining at number one also. So a complete sweep of us three, you know, the like-minded professors here. Um, uh, Let me piggyback on your points here. I think The Shining is so good that it is the only one that is clearly better than a Stephen King book. As much as I like Stephen King's book of this, I'll take The Hedge Maze over The Hedge Animals, I'll take the axe over, what was it, a croquet, a uh, mallet, or whatever the hell it was. I I, I like the movie. I, I think the movie's better. And, and, Jerry, I don't know if you've seen this or not, but there's a documentary out. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, it's about how Stanley Kubrick, uh, all these different theories about what The Shining was really about, the movie. And, you know, one person was saying, that, or one group saying it's about Native American suffrage, one saying that it's about him faking the moon landing. And there's all these reasons why, or that he was the one that shot the fake moon landing. And, and trust me, I, I understand the quacky part of that. I, I'm just saying it's interesting to watch, though. So if you ever get to track that down, definitely watch it, just for the sheer entertainment value. But, yes, I think The Shining is absolutely... One of my favorite movies, too. I don't know, you know, because there's so many good movies out there, but damn, this movie has great music. Jack Nicholson fucking destroys the role as Jack Torrance. There's so many iconic scenes from Here's Johnny to, you know, All Work and No Play. Jack makes Jack an old boy. I also like the part where uh, Wendy is bothering him, and he's like, 
if you hear me typing, that means I am working. <laughs> if you <laughs> or, don't hear me typing. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Or or he's like, uh, just give me the baseball. You didn't let me finish. I'm just <laughs> going to take the baseball bat and beat your guy damn brains in or whatever he said. Yeah. But I love that movie, Jer. I don't think we can disagree on that at all. And, Jer, to um, bring it back to your point, I was just playing devil's advocate about the ghost story part of it. Because let's face it, Jack Torrance, you could list him as a slasher, although he only did kill one person. But, you know, he could have easily uh, amped up the body count if he wanted to. And also an interesting ending of the movie that, we, you know, that nobody really knows the answer to. So, you know, Stanley Kubrick took that one with him to his grave. And if you're, uh, before we move on to Blake's number one and finish up this list, uh, there's... I think it's probably the one you're talking about. That there's a great documentary about this called Room 237. That's, That's the one. About yeah, it's awesome. So uh, if anybody wants to check that out, it's it's called Room 237, and it, it like Travis said, it has uh, a lot of theories, kind of some off the wall, and some that'll make you stop and think of, about what the movie The Shining is really about. But uh, yeah, I thought the moon landing one was bullshit, but the the Native American one sounded legit. Maybe you know. Yeah, yeah, it, it'll really make you think think about it, and uh, so yeah, great documentary, Room Two Thirty Seven, and a, and a great movie, The Shining. Um, I guess me, Travis, and Vic all agree with that. And we'll see what Blake thinks is number one Stephen King horror film. Yeah, Blake, there are people out there that disagree with us about, you know, the greatness of The Shining. Do you disagree with us? I, I don't disagree that it is one of the greatest movies ever made, but it surprisingly did not make my top five list. Okay. <clears throat> Um, so already just blown out of the water. Of course, I have to be the one. Musicians, we're just, you know, just remember, we're just fickle, fickle people. This is what we do. We we, we crave on going in and just causing chaos and disorder. But um, well, before you before you give your number one, you do have to admit that doom, 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 doom is awesome music. It, it is, and it's right up there with Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells, which they use in yep. the exercise. It's right up there with that. I will agree with you there. I do. I have a horror CD with The Shining and Tubular Bells, and Tubular Bells is track number five, The Shining's track number seven, and I listen I to I it. I have the same CD, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to it at least three times a week on the way to work just because it needs to prepare me. But go ahead, uh, Blake, will, sorry. I will say this. I do have the documentary, and it was directed by Vivian Kubrick, who is yeah. a relation, I don't know if it's the wife or the daughter, of Stanley Kubrick. So he, he she she takes over for that. And uh, I haven't watched the documentary yet, but I do know that it's, you know, one of those things, like you said, that talked about the certain, you know, what was this based on something else? Was this really a metaphor for, you know, something else and all that? But I will say this, um, my number one was hard because it actually changed mid-discussion mid with you guys. Originally, I had Dolores Claiborne, but Dolores Claiborne really couldn't be considered a horror movie. And again, it's an appearance of uh, Kathy Bates again. But my number one, uh, a friend of mine is a very close friend of mine is in the special effects industry in Hollywood. He did the effects for this movie, and a lot of people hate it, but I love it. It's Storm of the Century. Storm of the Century made my number one. Interesting. You know, I like the, uh, again, diversity. That's why I was most interested in hearing what your number one was. I was going to be surprised if none of the, you know, if Jared didn't have The Shining at number one and Vic didn't have The Shining at number one. But it's always cool to hear a different opinion. And, you know, there's so many good Stephen King movies out there. 
there are people out there, again, that, that disagree with me that think that Stephen King's book, The Shining, is better and that the new, the newer Stephen King, you know, Shining remake is more true to the book and better. I totally disagree, but, I mean, there are people out there of that opinion. So we all have our opinions. And, I mean, is there any, I was going to say, Blake, is there any writer out there that has, you know, produced more movies that are watchable than Stephen King? I mean, I know he didn't do them himself, but based on books? Uh, I'll have to say probably not. The next one I could think of would probably be, uh, well, if they had been made into movies, uh, a horror writer, uh, you know, R.L. Stein or Anne Rice or, you know, uh, something like that, or Dean Koontz, or, you know, maybe, maybe, but I think, uh, I think that, uh, Mr. King there has the, take, takes the, uh, he's the ringmaster of this event, he takes that, uh, without, you know, without stride, he just goes in and just blows away the competition, but it's funny that you mention the remake of The Shining, because my pal also did the effects for that, and The Stand, and he won two Emmys for his effects on the remake of The Shining and, Stan, and The Stand, and it's funny because Stephen King makes a cameo appearance as the leader of the orchestra, the Gage Creed Orchestra, in the <laughs> remake of The Shining. And um, Steve and I have talked a lot. I was actually trying to get him to do the show, but he's busy working on a new movie. He's working on one of those from that writer, H.P. Lovecraft. They're making a, a new movie. He's been very prolific in the industry. A lot of people don't give him the credit, but his work on those films are fantastic. Everybody else is so obsessed with the fact that he did the Marshmallow Man from the Ghostbusters, and he created Seal from Species, you know, and all that. He's got a great body of work, and he actually is one of probably one of my favorite special effects artists. And I think he did great work on The Shining, especially the naked lady in the bathtub. Holy <laughs> shit. Yeah, oh that scared God. the shit out of me as a kid, too. Uh, oh. Agreed. I was going to say... Uh, Sorry to interrupt you, gentlemen, but I know this is a list, top five Stephen King. We're honoring the man, the, the great writer, but uh, props to your pal on Storm of the Century. I think that I really enjoyed that movie, and I think the effects are what made that movie. So him being a part of that, those effects are great in that movie. So so props to him. Hopefully maybe we can have him on to talk about some of his experiences sometime. But, but you know, just hearing that he worked on Storm of the Century, that that's some great work. Well, Jer, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I've not seen Storm the Century. So you have silver bullets to see. I have Storm the Century to see. That's our project. Um, let's throw out quickly some honorable mentions. You know, I already mentioned Silver Bullet, Misery. We've all thrown out those out. But there are some movies that we have not brought up that I still think are, are good or at least watchable. I like Needful Things. I think Thinner's watchable. It's not as good as the book. Um uh, you know, there, there's some others out there. What have we not talked about that are some good Stephen King works? I had uh, Sometimes They Come Back. Yes, uh, uh, or Night also Shift. Tales from the Dark Side. Or Graveyard side. Shift. Right. Yeah. And also oh. Tales from the Dark Side. Uh, and then the other ones I've already mentioned, I think. Man, yeah. I, I have to be different and throw out the movie scared the shit out of me and made me not. I mean, I don't own a car today because they're re- Christine, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Christine, yeah. man. I was surprised Vic didn't have that in his top five. He loves that movie. Um, but, you know, whatever, it surprised me. And then another one that I also, uh, damn it, I just lost it. I had, oh, yeah, yeah, I like The Dead Zone, the original with Christopher Walken. I think yeah. that's a pretty good movie. Uh, it's slow, though. I mean, so it's hard to get into my top five list. 
And you know, guys, I do want to throw out before we head into our next list two more things that two more books that I wish would be made into movies, and they're probably two that a lot of people wouldn't think of. It's Gerald's Game and um, Insomnia. I would love to see both of those as movies. I just read Gerald's Game this year, and I've been thinking since August when I read it that it needed to be made into a that movie. Movie's, like, that movie, that book's so fucked up. Movie, you can make it. Yeah, yeah, that, that book's so fucked up. I agree 100%. Jer, have you read that book? Uh, I have not, actually. You said it's called Gerald's Game? Yeah, and I can't even describe to you what it is. I would rather you just look it up, okay? Gerald's Game. Yeah, certainly. I'll do that. I can describe it for him if you want. Go for it, because I feel like if I do, I'll spoil too much, so you go for it. One word. Sex. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of bondage there. Yeah, yeah I'm definitely looking into that for sure. Uh, before we move on from the, well, I didn't mean it like a pervert, but that's what it sounds like. Uh, I'm actually not that much into bondage, if the if the listeners want to know. But uh, <laughs> before we move on from Stephen King, uh, Chuck is listening in and chiming in a little bit on the chat. So I just wanted to make sure his thoughts got out there for everybody. Uh, he's listening in. Uh, went Children of the Corn, he said he agrees with Pondo. He walked out of the theater on it. Wow. Uh, we Chuck's older. About, Chuck's older than us. When we were talking about uh, Carrie, or I'm sorry, The Shining, he said, you know, the book was more of a ghost story than the movie, which I tend to agree with. And then Yeah, the movie uh, finally, was more cabin feverish. Yeah, it was, yeah, for sure. And then Chuck says he has a soft spot for Carrie. It was his first real exposure to Stephen King back in the day. So some good thoughts there with Chuck listening in. I thought I'd get those on the air because I thought they Thank were you, Chuck. Awesome. Chuck's always the one that can give us perspective on things. He's the one that saw Halloween before people knew Michael Myers, who the hell he was, or saw right. Friday the 13th before people knew that you know Mrs. Voorhees was the killer. So he has that perspective that we don't, and it's always cool to hear him talk about things. But, you know, guys, I guess we go better go ahead and jump into our next list. Jerry, you said the mask we want to do next? Yeah, I guess if that's fine with y'all, we'll save Survivor Girls for, for last, and we can go right into the mask. Let's do this opposite order this time. We'll let Blake, okay. or, or I'll tell you what, I'll go first, and then Blake, then you. How about that? All right, sounds fine. And we'll throw Vix in there, too. Right, guys, I'm going to surprise you with my number five, I think. I think it's a simple mask, but I think at the same time it's effective and scary without having to do anything to it, and that's the minor for my bloody Valentine. And he was in only two movies, but I still think that mask, and I don't think anybody else will have this in their top five. I think that mask was um, effective. I thought it was really cool, and, and it's a damn shame it never picked up to the point where we see little kids dressed as the minor on Halloween because that'd be badass as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's actually on my honorable mention without giving away too much of my list, but uh, so it did make an honorable mention for me. Uh, I know we're more trying to stay into the mask and the specific movies and things like that, but and not talk about the actual movie, but because uh, we could probably talk about the movies that we're going to bring up for 10 or 12 hours. But uh, mm-hmm. I really enjoy both those movies, uh, you know, My Bloody Valentine, and I have to agree that while not in my top five, uh, you know, The Minor Mask is, uh, you know, has some, some I, pretty iconic and, and uh, you know, pretty scary and, and just really served its purpose well in those movies. So, uh, I'd say that's a good pick there for number five. 
Everybody go back and listen to our My Bloody Valentine episodes earlier this year. Uh, I got pissed because the composer of the movie was supposed to come on and never did. The one who did uh, the My Bloody Valentine song uh, pissed me off. Yeah. Yeah. Pissed me off. But okay, so I guess Blake's up, or or, is it Blake up next? I guess Blake's up next with his number five. Yeah, my number five is actually not really one that was... It was in a few low-budget horrors that I've seen and um, all that. And it's actually just a faceless black thing that they wear over their face. It kind of has the way that the screen ghost face mask looks on the back. Mm-hmm. And it's just faceless in the front. That, to me, that's scary. Cause you don't, I mean, there's not even an expressionless face to see. Like uh, Michael Myers, you see an expressionless face. This guy, you don't see any fucking face at all. It's just, ah, come out of here and chop your ass up and you don't know. <laughs> it's just you can see it. You can find it at any five and dime store. It's been in a couple of really terrible, uh, really terrible low budget horror films. I was in a low budget horror film as an extra where the killer wore that, and the movie was terrible. But I like the idea of a faceless killer, like not even just like, not even a hockey mask, not even a William Shatner mask, whited out with fucked up hair. Just a faceless thing to me. That's just cool because it's always scarier when you don't know what it is, man. Yeah. That's that's the whole thing. All right, so uh, I'm gonna go ahead and throw out Vix and then Jairus. Um So Vix number five, this is one that I hadn't even considered on my list, but you know it's a pretty good one. And I think Vic's probably thinking more so of the remake than the original. I mean, hell, he has the tattoo of it, uh, the Michael Myers clown mask from the original or from the uh, remake, I believe. The the clown mask that he's wearing when he well, I guess technically he didn't kill his sister with the clown mask, but he does kill that stepdad and whoever else in that, and then kills the sister in the Michael Myers mask. But So that's the one for his number five. Vic has the tattoo. I can see how that could be listed. It's not my top five, but it's a very cool number five by Vic. Yeah, I like that pick. Uh, it's not really one I even thought, thought about um, when I was, and, and I spent an embarrassing amount of time putting my list together and making sure that, you know, I had uh, some, but that's one I didn't think about, but a great pick. Yeah, absolutely. And you're up now, buddy. All right, and I might be a little bit surprised because I'm such a big fan of these movies, but uh, my number five is the Michael Myers mask from Halloween 5 and 6 specifically. So uh, not a lot of changes in that mask uh, in the original movies, uh, a few subtle nuances and things, but uh, you know, maybe because uh, five and six are my favorite parts of the movies, but uh, uh, not 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 as high as I thought it would be originally. Uh, I guess you know the creep factor and the scare factor is not very high with the Michael Myers mask, especially with you know the explanation of it being a William Shatner mask turned inside out and painted white. That's not very scary at all, but uh, it certainly is iconic. I'm a little bit surprised that I only had it at number five, but that's that's where that mask ends up for me. Hey, hey, uh, Jerry, I hate the part five mask. <laughs> that's the truth. Hey, really? I don't hate it. I don't hate it as much as I do part four, uh, but I, I do hate it. But I do like part six. I thought they got it pretty right on on part six. I thought the part six mask was good. And Jerry, I will, even though I don't like part five all that much, I do like it. I like part six, the movie, a lot, which you guys can hear if you listen to our show from last year, where Vic and I uh, probably had our biggest disagreement about any of the uh, any movie, period, Halloween Curse of Michael Myers, where I told him he was crazy for giving it as low of a rating as he did. I gave it a high rating. 
So, I mean, you guys can listen to that on your own in the show archives. But So that's, that's you know, that's our opinion there. So we're through the number five spot. And I guess I'll go ahead and get into my number four now. But, uh, yeah, things are already interesting here. I did not expect uh, things to be so different as they are. But uh, my number four, I feel like it's it's – I feel like a lot of my list is simplicity, and my number four is very simple. We're talking about five and dimes and things like that. I think the ghost face mask is something they should have never fucked with in the Scream series, the new Scream series. Uh-huh. Unless you were going to, like, invert the mask and make it, like, a black and a white. Whatever they did to it, and I haven't watched the show because I've seen the previews and it looked like dog shit. I don't like it, but I love the ghost face mask, and I think it's one of the most popular masks that you can buy. In fact... I would put it number two as the second most popular mask that I see on Halloween behind the hockey mask. You guys may disagree, but that's what I see when I see trick-or-treaters. Uh, Blake, your opinion? Jerry, your opinion? Well, I mean, I can, I can see that. I mean, I I, I really can. And I'm, I actually was under the impression probably because I'm still coming off of uh, my moon binge. I was under the impression that we weren't going to be listing like ghost faces, so because it's such, it's one that almost goes without goes without saying. But I will say this: uh, it's it's scary. It's one they shouldn't have messed with. I don't like the new look of the show. I haven't even watched the show, and we discussed it on uh, the West Craven tribute special that we did, you know, uh, a few weeks ago. And I just I don't like the way that the the mask looks in the in the series. It looks like it doesn't look scary. It just looks like somebody was really poor and couldn't afford to go space mask. So they just <laughs> second rate like Walmart brand fucking <laughs> mask and like put it on and went to work or something. You know, it was just, I, I didn't like it at all. Like uh, to uh, clarify the the mask thing and and you probably are right. We probably should have eliminated a few just to make life a little harder for all of us. But really, I was just saying, you know, like Chucky didn't wear a mask, technically. Freddie didn't ma- wear a mask. So anybody that would say, well, Freddie, I mean, because you can buy a Freddie mask. I think this. I think the, the interesting part of this is to see where people have their number one. But Jer's already throwing a wrench in things, and so have you. So I think it's, it's still going to be as fun as we had hoped it would be. Um, I'll go ahead and throw out Vic's. And then we'll get into uh, your number four, Blake. Uh, Vic's number four. Uh, well, I apologize. I had it up, and then I lost it. Give me just a second. All right, Vic's number four is Chrome Skull from Laid to Rest. And you know what? That's another one that I didn't really think too hard about, but I love the Chrome Skull mask. And to me, Chrome Skull is the reason that those movies are watchable, that along with the kills. And I don't know who all has seen the Laid to Rest movies, but if you haven't, you should for no other reason, but the kills are awesome. Yeah, that's not one I'm really familiar with. Uh, so, so Vic's throwing in definitely some uh, ones kind of out of left field that, that we haven't really been thinking about for this topic. Uh, one thing I will say about the screen mask before we move too far on from that is uh, I thought about putting in my honorable mention, but but didn't do so. Uh, I completely agree with your point about uh, you know seeing it every Halloween and, and how long has it been since the last screen movie came out. Uh, and I totally agree with y'all about the series, though I do watch the series. Uh, it, it's not, uh, you know, one of those shows that, that I thought I would continue watching, but I have. Um, and really randomly, I'm not sure if Blake's even a wrestling fan or people listening are, but the, the Scream TV series mask reminds me, of, and this is so random, uh, but I can't get over it when I watch the series. Uh, like late 90s, early 2000, when WCW was terrible, uh, 
turned out to be Road Warrior Animal, which was ridiculous. <laughs> and he wore this mask and like this straight jacket looking thing. And the mask. I do remember. Mask, I, I remember mask. that. I used to. I used yeah. to watch. See, I was more a fan of. Uh, 1991, 2, 3, and 4, Undertaker. I was very, right. I, I was more WWF, as it were, then. This, than this, mask <laughs> this mask on the Scream series, every time I see it, I, I just think about when it when they revealed that it was a big reveal and it ended up being Road Warrior Animal. And I'm like, well, it's a tag team wrestler. And then, of course, that was the same night that, that Sid Vicious jumped off the, the rope and broke his leg like a moron. And, but anyway, not to get too far off, but yeah, I hate that mask on the Scream series. and Maybe it had something to do with it not making my list, but, but I agree that it's very iconic and something that people still wear to this day. You see them all the time on Halloween. Very good. All right. Uh, well, Blake, you're up, sir, I think. This is gonna sound. This is gonna sound really weird, but I have a, I have a, I have a logic. I have a logic. I have logic for this. But um, it's uh, my number four is actually Sam from Trick or Treat. Yeah, little, Sam. The little, the little mask. Fact that that it's a what's under the mask is even more fucked up than what's in the mask. You know. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's simple. And you know, it's just it's it's scary to me because it's just this whole movie. I'm like, oh, you know, he's just this guy. And then I was like, oh, what the fuck is that? Very <laughs> hell yeah, hell yeah, absolutely. So here's what I'm going to do on my top three and Vic's top three. In the interest of kind of moving things along quickly, because Vic and I are very, or I, I just say quicker, just because I think we're going to spend more time on the Scream Queens or the the Survivor Girls than we are uh, the masks themselves. I'll go ahead and throw out my top three and then Vic's top three. Now, uh, everybody may be surprised that my number one is not Jason Voorhees. No, the hockey mask is not my number one, although I will tell everybody I think it's the most iconic mask. Again, I see it the most at Halloween, probably because it's the most simple. You can buy a dollar you know, hockey mask anywhere you want to go from a Dollar Tree or wherever else. So, But, you know... To me, it's not as effective as the others, but it is damn good. Jason, you know, and if you guys want me to pick a movie out for Jason, I'll go with number seven. That's definitely my favorite version of the hockey mask. I've got him at number three. I've got Leatherface because, I mean, what's more fucked up than a skin mask? And, of course, I'm going with the first Leatherface. To me, that's the best-looking one. Uh, Or you could go with the remake if you really wanted to get too technical because I think both of them look great. Um, And, of course, I'm talking about in his like butcher outfit, not so much like the old lady mask or anything like that. I'm talking Leatherface number two. And then and then Jared, this is where we'll disagree. I've got Michael Myers at number one. I feel like the Captain Kirk mask, um, you know, I understand how it was made and everything, but I think I think John Carpenter probably deserves the credit for this. It's not so much the mask, but the way it's shot in the original Halloween. So that's what I'm talking about. Specifically the first mask. Uh, even though it's the same one in the second one, it's just fucked up from cigarette smoke. Um it it was the way John Carpenter shot it because they would have it like, you know, kind of fade into view and, and things like that. So to me, that masks greatness. And the reason why I have it number one is all because of John Carpenter. Um, a lot of cool things they did with it, you know, from the lights flashing on his mask whenever Tommy Lee Wallace is uh, playing the character and he's trying to get a hold of Laurie Strode in the closet. Um, and, and just all the different things they did with that mask to me is what makes that mask number one. So, Michael Myers is my number one. So, what is Vic's list? Let me get into this real quick. 
uh, and then we, we can discuss and get you guys top three. Um, Vic's top three is the same as mine. However, he's got Jason at number three. Uh, I don't need to explain that. We've got Michael Myers at number two, probably for the same reasons as I do. And since Vic's a homer, he's got Leatherface at number one because fucking he loves Leatherface. And to be honest with you, I feel like you can interchange any of these three into the number one, number two, number three spots. Leatherface is masked, but shit, what's more original than a fucking human face as your mask? So, I mean, I guess props to Vic. He and I have the same mindset on those. So, uh, Blake, I'll get your opinion on, you know, just the uh, our top three because, I mean, they're the obvious ones. But, you know, where you would kind of seed those if you were going to – because I'm sure your list is way more diverse, and I'll let you get into that. Oh well, I mean it is diverse, but again, and and it just I I see what you're saying about the way the you know when Tommy Lee Wallace is playing the character. But I will say this: um, in the first film, when Michael Myers looks over the railing down the stairs at Laurie's mm-hmm. Road, Nick Castle, when he plays the character, the way half the face is shadowed, that image was used on so many of the boxes for the first and second one. And there's actually more memes with that. Uh, I saw one the other day; it was totally. Hilarious! It was the guy who did the "Watch Me Whip, Watch Me Nay Nay" that stupid yeah. fucking song, and yeah. then there's a meme with Michael Myers over the grill, and it says "Watch Me Stab You with a Fucking Knife." Yep, you know? all the same like, one. Yes, yes, it's so good. <laughs> but yeah, I like the way the mask was shot, and it's the same way with Freddy. You know, the first few movies, him being you know encapsulated in shadow and the lack of lighting or the backlighting like they do, you know, those, depending on those monsters. And I think Vic probably picked uh, three, you know, made for Jason three, because the third film was the first time the hockey mask was used, 1982's Halloween Part 3 in 3D. That was the first time, first appearance of the hockey mask. So that's probably why he put it in the third spot, just for, you know, continuity's sake. <laughs> but, fair enough, fair enough. But, I mean, I mean, as far as my third mask, this is going to sound terrible, but... The Cupid Mask from Valentine, that, <laughs> that horror movie that came out in 2001 with David Boreanaz and uh, Denise Richards, that mask, especially with the bleeding left nostril, that was some fucked up shit, man. Yeah, it was pretty weird. I think my <laughs> big issue with that movie is what made me overlook it is that it was such a scream ripoff and there were so many scream ripoffs at the time that I need to go revisit them and kind of take my, myself out of that. Plus, uh, I watched it a million times with my ex-girlfriend, so I was, like, tired of it. Well, it's not one I've seen in the past five or six years. Well, after it yeah. came out, I saw it, and I, I liked the costume being this black outfit, you know, this black outfit, and then, um, you know, this mask, because it's supposed to be the face of something beautiful. What more scary? What is more scarier than being attacked by something that you love or something that's supposed to bring out these feelings of love and trust and warmth? How fucked up is it? To, to wake up to having your wife killing you or something like that, or something you trust in the, tr- the face of a Cupid is totally oppositely indicative of what the movie is. You know, the face of Cupid is beautiful, joy, happiness, and in the movie, the face of Cupid is the bringer of death. You know, I, I like that I like that dichotomy between it. That's probably the reason it's, it's one of my guilty pleasures. You know, so... It's just me. Totally understand. I understand. Uh, Jer, what do you think of the Cupid mask? Because I bet you it's not in your top five. Yeah, it's not in my top five, but uh, it, it's one that I actually thought about uh, when I was compiling the list. Uh, it, it is a total scream ripoff movie for the most part. You're, you're right about that, but 
as far as you know, you know, since the '80s, really, it's kind of hard to find a decent horror movie, much less a classic one. So it's one of those that I consider to be above average as far as if you want to call it a modern day horror. And I think the mask is, you know, like like Blake said, uh, the the dichotomy there between uh, you know Cupid being the the bringer of love and then the bringer of death, I think, adds a lot to it. So. Uh, it's a good choice. I like that choice. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have a problem with that at all. Like I said, I, I thought about it in my thought process as well. Uh, so so that's a good choice, and, and I'm glad to see it gets a little uh, love on the list. And I guess Damn philosophers. From Blake. <laughs> Go ahead, Blake. What's that? Go ahead and give your top, give top two. Oh, my top two. Sorry. Uh <sighs> Man, that's such a hard thing. Probably uh, my top, my second choice would be Jason from Part Two, the Burlap Sack, because again, it's all about the sack, and then you open up the sack and see what's in it, and it's more fucked up than the sack. So it's mm-hmm. like, again, that whole it's like you got me once, and then all of a sudden you got me again. You know, it was really cool. So it's it's in my it's in my second one. The top one again is probably a screen rip off, but I'm partial to Robert Englund and Slashers, and I have to say it's the coat and mass combo from Urban Legend, the first two Urban Legend yeah. films. The, the beekeeper's mask, isn't it? That's a, but no, it's it's like a parka, winter parka with fur on with fur on the mask itself, but the face itself is all black save for one eye slit, which is I think the left or right eye being open. It's just all black. I don't think it's a beekeeper. I don't think that's what they ever explained it as as being. I think what they did was they took a parka and then they put that mask from my fifth choice, my my number five mask, that faceless black thing and stuck it, you know, on underneath there because it's just again, it's just something that you just saw off the wall. You wouldn't think, oh, somebody's wearing a coat and some stupid-ass cheap faceless mask to go in here with an axe and fucking, like, brutally murder an entire college of people. But it's, it, it works, and it works with the second one, although I do like the first one better. I think the first one has some uh, great, great kills. And, again, I watched it because Robert Englund was in it, and I'm not going to I'm not gonna lie. I'm, I, I'm, I'm man-crushing on Robert. If, if, I was, if I was to be of the, of, you know, the other variety, I'd probably be chasing after Robert Englund because he's, he's my man, you know. <laughs> uh, so I, I do want to, I, I do want to touch on one of the ones he threw out there, uh, Jason from Part Two, guys. I will tell you, even though he's, you know, the burlap sack's not on my list, or you can say, you know, of course, the tail and the dreaded Sunday on either way. Um, no mask in the Jason series scared me other than Part Two when I was a kid. Jason in Part Two creeped me the fuck out, so it was effective if nothing else. Absolutely, and, uh, you know, I think there were some elements to, like, a fencer's helmet, like fencing helmet or mask to the urban legend mask, so... There you uh, go. It it was on my honorable mention as well, and uh, Chuck had chimed in with the town that dreaded sundown as well. I wanted to make sure to mention that, so uh, Mm -hmm. you mentioned that, Travis, so uh, that that was an honorable mention for me as well, the town that dreaded sundown. I'll go ahead and jump into mine. Uh, I actually didn't get a, get my fourth out there, so these will be my top four real quick. My bad, Jer. Oh, no problem. Uh, number four is actually the Silver Shamrock Mask from Halloween 3, the witch, the skeleton, and the pumpkin. Which one if you had to pick? 
if I had to pick between those three, I, I think it might be the pumpkin, just because. Oh, I love the, the skeleton. Pumpkin. Everybody else loves the pumpkin. I love the skeleton. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the skeleton's pretty badass. I think the witch would be my least favorite of the three. But but the mm-hmm. fact that the thing just rotted your head, and that the pumpkin, the jack o' lantern, was just rotten, and your head was rotten inside of it. Uh, was pretty awesome, and then the, the song. That's so awesome. Nobody else ever talks about Halloween three. Everybody's like, it's the, it's the dirty little secret of the Halloween thing because it has nothing to do with Haddonfield, Illinois. It takes place in Southern California and has nothing to do with Michael Myers. But at the time, they didn't know they were going to keep going with Michael Myers. It's the same story we hear with Nightmare on Elm Street two. They didn't know they were going to keep going, so they had a stuntman come in and do the the shower scene with Mark Patton and all that. And it's the same thing with Halloween three. I love just for the record. The, the three masks—it's the skeleton. It's got to be the fucking skeleton. Woo! So before Jer continues, and I apologize, Jer, I swear we're not trying to cut you off, but you opened a big can of worms that I want to get into. Uh, uh, Blake, uh, back when we talked about Halloween three last year, I, I was answering all the criticism of people that said Michael Myers isn't in Halloween three. Bullshit! He's on the TV. I saw him. I've seen Halloween three enough times to see Michael Myers on the TV in that movie. So he everybody says, yeah, I'm not going to forget that. But I'm saying the movie itself is not centered around him. They give this like a nod to you know him. It's like a nod yeah. today. So I, I love Halloween three. I think those masks are badass, and I love the song. Uh, and I think that movie's underrated. And if it was just called Season of the Witch, it would have been a great movie. But anybody wants to hear my full thoughts, go back to the Halloween three episode. Dare you move on? My apologies. I still say, despite uh, the technicality of him being on the TV, that Wes Craven lost a poker bet or something. And they John said, Carpenter, you mean? John Carpenter, excuse me. And they said, if you lose this hand, you got to make Halloween 3 without Michael Myers, and he lost it. But uh, Hey, he anyway. killed him in part two. He had to move on. So true, 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 true. My number three hasn't been mentioned yet. Uh, it's the jigsaw doll mask with the spiral, uh, just when he's riding that little tricycle and doing that laugh and the music that accompanies it. Um, I, I think that's a really creepy mask. I love that. I love the can I, can I Can I see your uh, your jigsaw mask and, and raise it a little bit? Sure. Uh, because I don't consider that one a mask. I consider that one like a puppet. Um, not that I, I mean, it's your list. I'm not going to fight you about it. But what I will say is the the mask that is in the series of Saul is the Saul pig mask. And that's one of my honorable mentions. Right. Yeah. That's also on my honorable mention. And, uh, I was trying and, you know, I actually thought about the puppet thing and, and I thought, you know, I love it so much and it's so iconic to me. And I think it made the movies. Uh, oh yeah, that I agree with a hundred percent. So, you know, I had to put it on my list at number three. Uh, and then we we get back to the the normals, uh, you know, the the, the top of the listers. Uh, Jason Voorhees, uh, the original hockey mask, right? The thirteenth three for me is is just so iconic that, you know, it's just a hockey mask, but but it it's not just a hockey mask if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And uh, then number one, uh, I'm being Vic today, so I'm going to be Vic till the end here. Uh, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original. Uh, does it get better than that for me? I've got one, I've got two honorable mentions that we have not thrown out, and I have to tell you. Um, so Blake, you talked about the Cupid mask from Valentine. I see your Cupid mask, and I raise you to Babyface from The Hills Run Red because it's pretty much the the Cupid mask with a, a fucked up skeleton portion of it or like jawbone. It's nasty, but it's awesome as well. So that's one. And the other one's Leslie Vernon from uh, the, the Rise of Leslie. 
I like that movie, and I like that that mask too. That's another honorable mention of mine, Leslie Vernon. I think that's pretty good. Oh, yes. Yeah. Robert Edwards, yeah, that is cast. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I realized out. also? And and I wanted to throw this out. There's not as many masks, like really good masks, as you'd think there would be. Mm-hmm. No. And really, really quickly, I'll give an honorable mention that hasn't been mentioned yet from the movie The Strangers, the doll face and the pinup girl. I like it. Yeah, uh, that was a really creepy, really great movie. That that movie's intense, man. I, I really like that movie, and I think the the doll face and the pinup girl uh, of the in, you know the the burglars or invaders of the house or whatever you want to call them are real creepy, and that movie just makes you uncomfortable. I think so. Uh, that's always good for horror. Hey, Jerry, I gotta I gotta tell you a funny story, okay? So I was listening to our Halloween two episode from last year earlier today. And you came on the show later on, and uh, first off, because I, I thought you were listening to the show at the time, right? And Vic said something about retards. That's what he said, and I said, you can't say that. You're offending all our retarded listeners. And he said, well, well, give me their names, and I'll send them apologies. And I said, Jer? <laughs> but you didn't respond. <laughs> oh, my God. And then you came on later, and I was telling you to go see your next, okay, or to watch your next. Right. Did you ever get to see that movie? I did, yeah. You like it? Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, not one of the, you know, I I liked uh, what Would You Rather better than that, which I watched recently on Netflix. Oh, I love that. Your next was 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 really good. Uh, worth the watch for sure. Uh, and the animal masks, by the way, should mm-hmm. be mentioned as yeah. well. They're really good. So. They were. All right, well, I guess this will be the funnest portion of the show, or maybe not, because the Stephen King one was damn good. That carried an hour. So I guess we'll go ahead and jump into the Survivor Girls. And let me just clarify for everybody listening and maybe anybody on the line if I wasn't clear. Survivor Girls, meaning the character themselves, they had to get through at least one movie. Uh, Simple enough, one horror movie. That could be Laurie Strode. That could be, I don't know, Sidney Prescott, Ellen Ripley, uh, whoever. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about Jamie Lee Curtis per se, but of course she played a big part of Laurie Strode. So whoever it may be, it can be. Um, I'm going to do this one a little bit different. I'll start with Blake to go first. Who's your number five? Okay, pick number five was very, very hard for me. And I'm going to, obviously my list is totally going to, I can already hear you guys now, but it's fine. I'll deal with it when it comes. Uh, The fifth, (laughs) The, the fifth choice for me is Alice Johnson from oh. Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and 5. She survived you mean both Nancy? movies. And Nancy then you Thompson? Never uh, no, Alice Johnson. Oh, Alice. Alice okay. Oh, okay. My bad. I thought you said Alice Thompson. I was like, who, did he just combine two people? Okay, I got you. No, now. not me. Oh, I'm writing a book about this. There's no way I could do that and get away with <laughs> She was That's hot, really too, hot. by the way. She was. They covered her up way too much, but she was hot. Oh, yeah, but she survived two movies, and then... You never, you never see her again until you go into the Innovation Nightmares on Elm Street comic series and then the Freddy vs. Jason first Ash the Nightmare Warriors where she, um, because she's the Dream Master, she gets a terminal illness and passes her powers on to the, her child from the fifth movie, Jacob Daniel Johnson. She passes on her powers, but if you don't count that as canon, uh, you know, like most people don't, she survives a few movies, and then we never know what the hell happens to her after that. So it's like, man, I was kind of left hanging, but she survived. She's one of the few people to survive for, uh, an attack by Freddy Krueger twice and mm-hmm. go on about her business. 
Yep, very true, very true. Good one. I like the, uh, I mean, I don't want to call it obscure, but most people don't think of the Survivor Girls beyond the first one, so uh, very cool. Um, I guess, okay. Jer, I'll let you go next. I will uh, be the finale on this one. Okay. Uh, I think this might be a little bit of a shocker, seeing as how I feel about the movies once again, but my number five is Stretch from Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> 2, Caroline Williams. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because you and Vic really are the same person this week. You and uh, Vic both had stretch at number five. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, that's just great. But, no, I mean, we talked about that on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 retrospective where, I mean, her, her with Leatherface you know, was one of the best parts of the movie. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I think Caroline Williams does such a great job with that role and, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of other characters that, that are iconic to me in that movie that, that where she does it end up higher on my list. You know, Chop Top, uh, Leatherface, of course, Drayton Sawyer, and she kind of, and Lefty, and, and she kind of comes in there about fourth or fifth in the movie. But but she, as far as Survivor Girls go, I think she was a great one. And uh, number five on my list goes to Stretch. Let me just say, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre rolls on because... My number five is not is not Stretch, but it is Marilyn Burns, uh, Sally uh, Sally Hardesty, uh, you know Marilyn Burns as Sally Hardesty. And let me just say, uh, she might have been higher had she been in more than one movie. But out of all of the ones that we've talked about so far, and even the ones that we'll talk about later, I feel like she gives the best performance out of any of them. Considering the circumstances, the conditions, and all those things, she made me believe her character more than any Survivor girl that I've ever seen. So that's why she gets my number five, and that's why she gets an inclusion into a list, and this may be spoiling it, of people that I have that have all been in more than one movie. So um, Sally Hardesty gets the nod there at number five for me. Um, she just does a hell of a job as Marilyn Burns, or Marilyn Burns does a hell of a job as Sally Hardesty. So this kind of a combination of the two here, where the actress makes the role, um, and it's not just the character that made it great. So that's just me. Um, and we've already talked about Vic, so let's go to Blake again for number four. Man, that was a hard choice, but you know, seeing as how you mentioned Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, I'm gonna have to go with Amy Steele as camp counselor Jenny Fields as Paul's assistant. She survives that movie, and again, you don't know what the hell happens to her. They mention her in Part Three, and you see the uh-huh. the footage, but she survived uh, what I like to call wrong turn era, Jason. You know, this hip hillbilly like deformed guy with the burlap potato sack on his head. You know, she survives all that massacre, and then. You don't see her anymore, save for that clip in uh, in uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Three at the beginning when um, you know the people in the house there you know are, are watching it, Edna and uh, whatever the other guys, Harold, Harold and Edna are watching it. But um, yeah, she survives, man, and you know she pisses herself in the movie when that rat <laughs> crawls under the bed. I'm like, this lady has pissed herself, and apparently super deformed. I'm uh, you know. Pills have eyes, era Jason can hear her pissing because he turns around and then it cuts away and then you think he's gone and he's actually standing over top of the bed and then he falls like an idiot into the fucking chair and she gets away. But yeah, she survives that movie and I'm just like, man, she she, she understood Jason more than any of the other characters because when they're at the bar, she's like, you know, he must have saw the whole thing happen in front of him. He must have saw his mother get killed and yeah. think she did all this happen because she loved him. You know, he probably didn't even know the meaning of death until that horrible night, you know, when he watched her die. And 
I'm sitting here thinking, well, what the fuck? If he wasn't dead, why didn't he just shamble out of the bushes and be like, Mom, I'm still alive? You yep. know? But then that would have negated Tech- an entire franchise, so, you know, yeah. <laughs> yep, child psychology major there. You know, that the Friday the 13th franchise is riddled with shit like that, but that is another story for another day that I've told many times, I'm sure. Jerry, what's your number four, buddy? Uh, number four for me is, um, and this might be surprising again, um, I'd expect to have her higher even on my own list, but uh, she ended up number four, Lori Strode is number oh. two for me. So uh, Jamie Lee uh, surviving several bouts with uh, Michael Myers in the Halloween movies. I uh, think she did a great job. I, I, not to focus, go back too much on TV series, but... Uh, I think she's the best part of a, a terrible uh, Scream Queen show, which I was really looking forward to, but it looks like it's going to be kind of shitty. Oh, I loved it. I loved Did it. Did you really? Emma Roberts needs a raping. I loved it. Let's <laughs> <laughs> uh, quote yeah. you on that. <laughs> but, yeah, Laurie Strode, uh, you know, obviously one of the more iconic. I think if you asked anybody, any, you know, routine viewer of horror movies, uh, she's a name that would come up, but uh, just number four on my list for Lori Strode. Uh, not a knock on her by any means. You know, I love Halloween uh, nearly as much as I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but uh, that's where she ends up, number four for me, and I'll go ahead and let us keep rolling on. I can feel the Halloween hate flowing within you, Jer. <laughs> Alice Hardy gets Vicks number four from Friday the 13th. Um, my favorite part about Alice Hardy is, well, the fact that Adrian King played her. Uh, just because I like Adrian King, I don't think the character is anything special. I don't have anything against Alice Hardy, but she's just another character and another survivor girl for me. But I do like Adrian King, so let me be clear about that. Um, that's Vic's number four. Um, my number four is, uh, this should be an interesting one, I think, um, because if you would have asked me five years ago, she would have been my number one, but I've dropped her a bit. Nancy Thompson is my number four. Good old Heather Langenkamp, I think she does a great job as Nancy. I like her a lot. But there are some goofy things that she does. Screw your past that kind of dropped her for me. Plus, she only lasted, you know, a movie and a half. So as much as I love her, oh, well, she did kind of come back in, in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. But I, I like Nancy. She's cool. I like Heather Langenkamp. She's cool. So she definitely deserves inclusion in my list at number four. And now, Blake, you're number three. The first thing I want to say is good job on having her in the list. I think it's I think she definitely needed to be noted. But I will say I don't really consider her uh, Nancy in the, the seventh film because that is basically a postmodern deconstructed horror movie. There is no it, it's not like following continuity. Most people don't even consider it part of the original series of films. Most people are like well I've seen one through Freddy's Dead and I didn't watch anything after that I was like well you're missing a hell of a spectacle because you know the deconstructed thing was actually kind of a kind of a brilliant idea you know and it ended up happening you know again you know in Scream you know just two mm-hmm. years after, two years after but um I will say my third pick is uh Sydney Prescott man I have to give it to Nev Campbell man I loved her in the craft you know I loved her in just about everything she's been in she was in this terrible horror movie with Stephen McCaddy called The Dark, where she played like a sheriff's deputy. Oh, my God, it was shot on a budget of probably $20,000, if not less, and it was just terrible, but she was so believable. It made me forget the quality of the shitty film and focused just on her 100% superb acting. She's believable. She's She's, she's got that strong sensibility, but she's also the girl next door. 
very much like Heather Weidenkamp's Nancy Thompson character, you know, and she's, uh, she's you know, got that whole, I'm, I'm you know, sensitive and, um, you know, fallible, but I'm going to make the best of it and come out on top, and she survived, you know, four films, you know, so I have to, I have to give her her props. Wes Craven, um, he, he had an eye for talent, that's for sure. Um, Jerry, you're up with your number three. Yeah, my number three has already been mentioned. Uh, for me, one of the most iconic, uh, if not the most iconic, Survivor Girl, uh, and probably the original Survivor Girl as far as my lifespan goes, uh, Sally Hardesty, Marilyn Burns, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's a very good choice. Very good choice, and, you know, I've already, you know, I guess talked about her merits, and I do have to say, I do appreciate the fact that it was over 100 degrees and her nipples were still hard in that movie. So that was nice. I appreciate that to this day. Thank you. She did that just for you, Travis. <laughs> I think so, too. All right. So, um, our uh, Vic's number three. Let me get to it here because he had to split it up. He had to think really hard about his. Nancy Thompson's his number three. Good number three. We've already talked about her. So definitely one to uh, say, yep, damn right. Now, my number three is going to be one that I don't know if you guys even have on your list because I don't know if you consider it horror or not, but I definitely do. And she is the epitome of a strong survivor girl, and that's Ellen Ripley. While I don't think Sigourney Weaver is even in most of these girls' class as far as her looks and everything, I mean, you know, again, like many of the other girls, she made the role, and because of that, she lasted movies upon movies. In fact, there are no, unless you consider Prometheus, there are no alien movies without Sigourney Weaver. Um, and so she kind of helped carry that series, and I got to put Sigourney Weaver in there somewhere, and I think Ellen Ripley's an important character, uh, I guess, for women everywhere, so props to her for being a hell of a survivor girl. Blake, that comes to you at number two now. Well, I will say I do like the fact that you mentioned Ripley. Uh, Ripley is not in my list, but I will say that I, I think it's, it's funny that she came up in uh, Scream 2 in the film class scene where Jamie Kennedy and Joshua Jackson were both talking about it. He was like, you know, you know, Joshua Jackson's like, yeah, you know, when she says, get away from her, you bitch, and then Jamie Kennedy's like, no, the line is stay away from her, bitch. This is film class, right? You know, I thought that was kind of a nice, a nice little, you know, mention of her, and I still homage to her, but my um, my second choice is, I'm probably not even going to consider this uh, horror, but you know, it could be, uh, the character of Alex from the Resident Evil films, she's a final girl. Fuck, if she's not a final girl, I don't know who is. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus Christ, there's five of those movies, and everybody around her has died. It's like, it's like it follows almost, you know, everywhere this bad bitch goes, people die. Every fucking where, you know. So it's really weird. I didn't think of her and I have to be honest with you, here comes my bias. It's probably because I don't like those movies very much because I love the video game and like So do I. So do I. They're so I thought the movie was gonna be like the video game and then it wasn't, but it it gave me a it took on a different life. I was like, well, if the game wasn't the way it was, this would be an acceptable choice, you know, as a game, if that were the thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fair assessment. I mean, it really is. I, I just hadn't thought of her. It's a great choice, though, to be honest with you. Uh, I think you know, my own bias kind of... But then again, I was kind of, you know, thinking of classics. But, I mean, damn, Alice is definitely up there. I mean, there's a lot of people that love those movies, even if I think they suck. So, I mean, I can't argue with that. I guess, Jerry, you're up with your number two. Yeah, and I'm not going to spend too much time railing against Ellen Ripley or Alien, but uh, that's just not my thing. It's probably a preference thing, but 
I can't argue the fact that she's, uh, you know, iconic. And, and any time you mention any kind of sci-fi movie or alien movie, you're going to hear Ellen Ripley's name. So I can't argue that too much. But my number two, and I'm going to end up looking like the Saul Homer here on this show tonight, but uh, my number two is Amanda Shawnee Smith from Saul. Uh, she just played so many different roles throughout that movie. She was the victim. She was one of the, you know, people being manipulated by Jigsaw. And then she ended up taking the villain role and, uh, you know, the Jigsaw role as well. And I just think, she, you know, it might be a credit to Shawnee Smith. I think she did fantastic with, with all the roles she was given throughout the Saw franchise. Um, and really, other than Tobin Bell, who's, you know, has my utmost respect and I love to death, uh, I think, you know, it, it's uh, pretty inarguable that, that Shawnee Smith makes the Saw films. So Amanda is my number two. Interesting choice, and I like your take on it. I love Shawnee Smith, so I can't really uh, give you any grief for it. It, it is an interesting take, and I, I, like I said, I like her in The Blob. I like her in a whole lot of other things. Um, well, we get into the number two for uh, Vic, if I haven't thrown it out already. I don't think I have. Uh, Laurie Strode is is his number two. I feel like you can't really have a slasher top five without mentioning Laurie Strode somewhere along the way. Um, she, in many ways, was the original Survivor girl. Yes, I know Sally was before her. But, I mean, as far as movies and sequels and, and slasher series go, everybody thinks of Laurie Strode. Everybody thinks of Jamie Lee Curtis. You, you, you just cannot, like, forget her. Laurie Strode is to Survivor girls as the hockey mask is to masks, if that makes any sense what I'm saying. So, uh, oh, yeah. Main, yeah. Mainstream Survivor Girls, Lori Strode is the first name that comes to mind, no doubt. And and by the way, my number two also is Lori Strode. So Vic and I are on the same page with our number two. I think, I think part of the only thing that uh, – I can't speak for Vic, but I don't really like Lori Strode – in H2O very much, and I don't really like her that much in Resurrection. So things change a bit down the line, and that kind of hurts the character for me. Um, and honestly, I think maybe we both have some sort of bias because Jamie Lee Curtis charged 80 bucks for autographs, and that pissed me off. So <laughs> that's just the truth. But maybe she should be number one. But Laurie Strode uh, definitely deserves inclusion. So, Blake, man, I'll tell you what, you get to be the man who uh, goes first with your number one. Well, I will say this about Laurie Strode, you know, um, she survived and everything, but it's just like, I can't really count her in Resurrection because she's in the movie for like 10 minutes before she dies. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is some bullshit. That's exactly what I said. As soon as that scene happened, I got up and I was like, this is some bullshit. And I decided to sit back down after I had my little fit and finish it. It ended up being a fairly decent film. Uh, I bust her rhymes. I was a little bit thrown off by Halloween, motherfucker. I was a little bit thrown off, you know, that. But I mean, what, whatever. But um, okay. So I I did make a list that did not include Laurie Strode, and I mainly did that because, like you guys said, she is the epitome of final girl. You know, everybody thinks of her, and a lot of people. Matter of fact, over the past few years, she's actually eclipsed. My number one, my choice for number one because of the remakes of the Halloween films, but number one, my number one has got to be Nancy Thompson. It has to be from the original Michael Elm Street and from uh, the half of, you know, Dream Warriors in 87. She just, she, you know, was this normal, everyday, average girl who was dealt in an extraordinary situation and basically watched her friends be systematically slaughtered in their sleep. Nobody would believe her, even though the town's dark secret knew it to be true. 
true, and she survived. She turned her back on him, and I think probably the best line in the film was like, you know, you're nothing, you're shit. You know, the way she does that and bucks up to him at the end after being terrified of him for, you know, three quarters of the film, the way she grew her balls, if I can be so blunt and, you know, gross and vulgar, uh, she grew her balls and then, you know, she got him on his own front. She lured him, you know, she went and fought him on, on his own front, and that's something that uh, needs to be said for her because she did survive the first film. You know, and, and, you know, she left a diary for instructions on my pal, you know, my pal Mark Patton on how, you know, he could survive it. <laughs> and he did, though we don't ever know what the hell happens to him either. But, um, you know, she left instructions for him. So, really, she really did survive three films. And then, you know, she's, and if you follow the comic book series, it's continuity. She's become sort of the opposite of Freddy. She's an agent of good, like the, the Glenda the Good Witch. She lives in this beautiful dream where she was dreamed into by Christian at the end of uh, the third film. So, she's just like Freddy, except... Uh, intrinsically good, and I don't think uh, Robert England's spoken to me about this before. He's like, there's not a better match where it's one good, pure good versus pure evil. Nancy is everything that is good, and Freddy's everything that is evil. It's this age-old, you know, going back to the Greek Greek gods and Greek dramas. You know, it's just it's never been there's the line ever been so clearly drawn between good and evil. I think uh, her blue eyes help to uh, solidify the fact that she's so good. You know what I mean? When you look at her, she's got these... these. She really does. She has beautiful blue eyes. And, guys, I have to share with you, I have a nice little autograph from her on an 8x10 on the bathtub scene in, in Nightmare on Elm Street. So, uh, thank you, uh, Heather Langenkamp. I do appreciate it. Uh, I've spent some hours with those. No, I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> good stuff. Uh, I, I like Nancy Thompson. I like Heather Langenkamp, for sure. She's badass. And, a hell of a nice person when I've met her as well. So, um, Jer, it's yeah, your I'll turn, buddy. Um, and, and I, I gotta say, uh, I just took a deep breath. I've been super nervous this whole time because you know we got somebody writing the book on Nightmare on Elm Street, and uh, I won't put it quite as eloquently as he does. And but Nancy Thompson's my number one as well, and uh, Heather Langenkamp. Uh, you know, I talked about it with Shawnee Smith and. I think Heather Langenkamp, uh, you know, obviously you got the iconic Robert England playing Freddy Krueger and, and uh, you know, really making the movie, but you, you have to have a yin to that yang, and, uh, or yang to the yin, or however you want to put it. But uh, I think uh, Heather Langenkamp as Nancy uh, really does that in that movie more so than anyone uh, any survivor girl or final girl that I've seen in any horror movie uh, growing up. So she gets my number one as well, and, and I'm happy to see that Blake, uh, you know, put her there as well because I wasn't sure how that would go over. But, uh, yeah, that, that's how I feel about it, and I, I think uh, that's a testament to, to Heather, uh, the way she played that role and uh, the, the impact she made, uh, you know, uh, on film with, uh, you know, such a strong... Uh, character actor like Robert England. Uh, so Nancy is my number one. Hey, Jerry, you care to take a guess as to who Vic's number one is? Uh, with the way this show's been going, I'm just going to go ahead and guess that uh, we're three for three with him uh, having Nancy there. You mean, no, no, he's guessed Sally Hardesty number one. Okay, Sally, okay. See, well, it, it was going yeah. that way, you know, all Texas Chainsaw Massacre shit for Vic, so he's got Sally Hardesty number one. I've given you my reasons why she deserves inclusion on the list, certainly not number one as far as I'm concerned, 
I mean, damn, you only get through one movie, it's hard to have you at number one in my book. But just my opinion, uh, that's Vic's opinion. And one of these days, I'll let him defend his opinion. he probably do it poorly. Um, <laughs> all right, fellas. So uh, you, you may be surprised about my number one. Uh, it has She has been brought up, okay? I think only Blake brought her up, though. I'm not sure Jared did. Um, Neff Campbell's my number one. Sydney Prescott. Um, she lasted four movies, okay? She had people taking runs at her, all sorts of different people. She wasn't just fighting off one villain. She had to fight off, let's see, one, two, four, five, seven. Seven different villains throughout the series instead of just having to fight off one person over and over and over again. And hell, by the time Screen 4 rolled around, she was just like, oh, this shit again. You could just tell by her expressions and everything else where it was just like, oh, this shit again. I mean, she was such a survivor girl in those movies themselves that movies were made, being made about her life. Um, I like Sidney Prescott. I like Nev Campbell. It's a good combination there. I think that, uh, uh, I don't know, something about her. I love Sidney Prescott. And, and, you know, with all the shit she went through and all the things she, I mean, hell, her own mom got butchered in front of her. Um, so for me, Sidney Prescott's my number one. I think she's awesome. And uh, I think the Scream movies, you know, the reason why they never really moved forward after part four and it took so long for four, part four to be made was because she was apprehensive, you know, to be involved in a series where it just didn't make logical sense for her to keep coming back. So uh, Sydney Prescott, my number one. Well, I'll just say I love, love, love the Scream movies, uh, but Nev Campbell is not one of the reasons that I love the Scream movies, so... I'm uh, going to disagree with you a little bit on this one, but uh, I guess that's why we're doing the show. And, and I lo- you know, there's nothing I love more than parody on these lists, but she just always seemed kind of cheesy to me. Uh, you know, uh, I can't argue the fact, like you said, she survived four movies. She had, you know, people coming at her every movie that, you know, could have been anybody. It could have been her boyfriend. It could have been her best friend. It could have been her dad, her dead mom, whatever the you know, the case would be, but uh, I love Scream for, uh, you know, like Blake mentioned earlier, Jamie Kennedy's character, Randy, uh, Matthew Lillard in the first uh, first one, Stu, uh, the background characters, the, the, the supporting cast, but uh, Nev Campbell, uh, Sidney Prescott is, is never a character that, that I really loved, and I kind of hoped she would die in Scream 4, so maybe Scream 5 will happen, and, and she'll get it. You um, know, the one I wanted to die was either uh, Courtney Cox or uh, David Arquette in Scream 4. I love Scream 4. I love Scream 4, like, a whole lot, but I think that was the thing that was missing, is that they should have killed some crucial character, and they didn't really pull the trigger on any of that, and so that's kind of the thing that I think also helped... Uh, you know, kept it from going forward like it should have, uh, and also the American box office didn't do that great. Hey, Vic may be calling in, and we can really uh, shake him down about his Sally Hardesty at number one pick. I can't give him too much shit on that pick because, like I said, for me and my lifespan, she's the original Survivor girl, even though she only survived the one movie, but uh, it, we'll, we'll see. I can't argue. I can't argue with that at all, Joe. I'm trying to figure out where the hell Travis got his mask from because I'm going back over Scream and we had Billy and Stu the first one, we had Mickey and Debbie in the second one, we had Roman, her brother, in the third one, and then we had Charlie and Jill. You said seven. Who the hell was that other person? Well, there's two, four, five, and then two more. That's seven. Mm -hmm. 
Seven people were coming after her, one of which was a brother, uh, one was a boyfriend, um, one was a cousin, uh, one was just some random dork. Um, by the way, I liked your theory, Blake, uh, once upon a time that you've thrown out there. I don't know that it was your theory, but, you know, the one that had been floated around about Stu still being alive and in prison somewhere. Yeah, that yeah, was kinda... that was in that was a that was a thrown away idea they had for Scream Two. He's actually in Scream Two, and he actually made a comment. I heard him make it. He's like, somebody said, "I saw you in Scream Two. He said, "No, you meant Scream One." He said, "No, you get a cameo in Scream Two. You're one of the party goers. You're only on screen for a total of four seconds." And he's like, "Lady, you watch too much TV, <laughs> okay? You know, nobody else would have noticed that was me, but you. But I happened to see a glimpse of it after I heard the remark, and I was like, holy shit." He is in the second one for just like four seconds of screen time at the big sorority party where Jerry O'Connell and uh, uh, Rebecca Gayhart and Sarah Michelle got and all the rest of them are at in that little area. He she, he shows up. You know, he's got different hair and some weird sunglasses that don't seem to work. They're like silver sunglasses, yellow lenses. Totally 90s. Totally 90s looking. But, um, yeah, he's in the second one for just a split second. So I thought that was kind of cool. That's yeah, awesome. Cool. I've never heard that. And Me either. Can I say really quickly that uh, I know we're talking about Survivor girls, but uh, if you want to talk about uh, Survivor guys who really got a raw deal, what about Cotton Weary, man? That guy never killed a fucking soul, but he did prison time and then ended up getting killed himself. He thought he was after Sidney Prescott. I mean, the guy never hurt anybody, and he did prison time and ended up giving his life. Cotton Weary got a raw deal, man. Unfortunate casualty of the horror movie film. He was a red herring type character, you know. I got yeah. attached to him after the, first, after the first two, and then I saw him die in the third one. I was like, wow, that was not quite what I wanted to see, you know, because I was hoping he would he would make it, you know, because he really seemed to be a likable a likable character. You know. He thought with how he got shit on in the first two films, he would get his redemption before the series ended. He did get redemption. He got to go see Jesus. He did get redemption. <laughs> That's true. Hey, you know, I, I have an opinion on that. Uh, I, you know, well, not an opinion on that. I, I just wanted to give some thoughts on Cotton Weary. I love him in part two, the way he would get annoyed and stuff. You know, whenever, like, Sid wouldn't do what he wanted and he would just start getting annoyed, well, yeah. then book me. Well, then book me. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that was a crime. I didn't realize that I wasn't allowed to raise my voice in the library. I just thought he was awesome in that movie. So, I mean, you got to give props to the actor, uh, you know, uh, Lee Schreiber. Uh, in that yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's on that. his life. He's risking his life the whole second movie just so Sidney will do a damn interview on TV with him. He's like... So, yeah, I love that. But Liev Schreiber was great in that role, for sure. Dude was money-motivated, for sure. So, okay, so we threw out the major, obviously, the major Survivor girls. Alice Hardy was one of my honorable mentions, easy enough, because, you know, I love Adrian King. Uh, but I just think the character didn't crack my top five. One that we haven't talked about, and I think she deserves some sort of mention, you know, uh, is Clarice Starling. You know, from Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal. I think, you know, at least she deserves some sort of props um, as played especially by uh, 
um, Jodie Foster, no matter what you think of her. I mean, she did a hell of a job in the role. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that I know, knew that she would have qualified for this list, but, uh, you know, to be honest, she probably would have got an honorable mention anyway from me just because I'm pretty happy with how my list turned out. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, I, I would definitely say her as well. And uh, if you'll allow me, I'll, before we, you know, wrap up, I'll give you another one that barely missed my top five. Go for it. All right, I'll go ahead and throw it out. It's uh, Danielle Harris as Jamie Lloyd. Uh, you know, yep, that's a good one. Yeah, so I really wanted to put her in there in the list, but I felt like I couldn't bump Lori Strode all together, and I, I you know, didn't really want to bump the stretch from number five for Jamie Lloyd. Uh, but I think uh, what hurt her was uh, they had to change actresses. It sucks that in Curse it wasn't played by Danielle Harris. Yeah, she tried, Travis. She tried to be cast. Oh, I know. But, oh, I know. Uh, they, they, they wouldn't give her what she wanted, and they got J.C. Brandy to uh, come in and take the role. And I don't think she did very, very well. That movie, I loved the movie, but I think that was a poor poor casting choice. First getting it her, was. You know. It was. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. I mean, it just was what it was, though. It's one of those things that we just have to look back at and say, oh, well, fuck. I guess we got what we got, you know? Like, just like Freddy versus Jason, we all wanted Kane Hodder versus Robert England. And not to say that Ken Kersinger did a bad job, but, you know, we wanted what we wanted. We didn't get it, and you have to accept what you got.
yeah, that'll be cool though. Jayla Rose next week. Uh, talk a little bit about being on Insidious, which you know, very briefly before we wrap up. Sorry again, but um, you know, I talked about how it's hard to find a good horror movie that you would consider a great horror movie. But but for me, the Insidious films are really, really at the top as far as modern horror movies. I really enjoy the Insidious movies. Um, uh, to me, that's probably one of the scariest movies of all time, the first Insidious. I like the second yeah. one. I have not seen the third one yet, but I will. Um, and, and it's just my opinion. I think they do everything right in Insidious. It's a big poltergeist throwback in a lot of ways. Um, they kind of take poltergeist's uh, simple premise and, and make it a hell of a lot more scary. So um, Insidious is a great film. So it'll be fun to talk to Jay LaRose about that for sure. Um, guys, well, I'll tell you what, um, and Blake, I don't know if you have a Twitter and things like that. I didn't get to ask you last time, but if you have anything like that, social media wise that you want to throw out, go for it, man. Here's your forum. Well, I don't, I don't really have a, I I do would, I would like to direct everyone if they want to go check out one of my two book projects. I've got a, a WordPress, believe it or not. And, uh, uh, it's called, it's the, the link is www.seeingredandgreen.wordpress.com. That's the title of my book. Basically, all the book is, is it's what well, I really can't say all, but quite a bit of the book. There's interviews with people that have done work in the films, including my pal who worked on The Shining uh, miniseries and some of the Sin Traders. Interviews with him. There's interviews with some uh, other people who played Freddy in some real well-known fan films. There's... Um, other fans, glove makers, people who have made films and stuff like that that I've talked to. But really the project is just to kind of analyze and interpret America's fascination with something so evil and why we why we enjoy being bad so much and enjoying Freddy Krueger and, you know, because of what he is and what he was and what he continues to be. So that, that WordPress uh, link is there. And, um, also, I've been working on a, a, new, a novel. I think I've got uh, Andy Mangles, who's a very famous comic book writer who wrote uh, the Nightmares on Elm Street Innovation issue series one through six, and then he wrote a few issues at the beginning, which is supposed to be the prequel comic book to the whole film series. He's going to, I think, I've hooked him to do the foreword, uh, you know, introduction for my other book, which is called A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Razor's Edge, and that basically is a uh, prequel going more in-depth on Freddy post, uh, uh, post being in Springwood, pre-burning, you know. My, my story's a little bit different than Nathan's, you know. He tells Freddy as being this drifter. I tell Freddy is I think it's a lot scarier to have him be somebody that grew up in the neighborhood. It's always scarier when, you know, Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy is your next-door neighbor. It's always scarier when it's somebody you see every day, you know, versus, you know, some, uh, some drifter type. But I've been working on that project, and, um, uh, also, my film scores are going to be up online very soon. I've got a Facebook link. It's uh, www.facebook.com forward slash Blake Best Music. And I've got a band project that's going off right now. And uh, I'm to put out a record. There's been a lot of uh, stuff on that. So I may be taking a break on the book for a while to go back on tour and, and you know, go and get signed again, which would be awesome because I miss being on the road. But um, I'll keep you guys in the know about that. But the project is called Life Below Zero. And... Um, We'll be putting some singles and some demos and stuff up shortly, but uh, the film scores will be up probably by the end of the week. It's just the stuff I've been working on for some horror-based things. A lot of it is stuff that I just pitch out to filmmakers. I work with a lot of lower-budget filmmakers, and then 
it's a way to get my other work that's not signed metal hardcore work out there. So that's basically what it is. If you want to hit me up there, Rob, you can hit me up on my Facebook page. I just have a regular Facebook page. Travis, you're on my friends list. You could direct there or anybody else to that if you'd like. Absolutely. Uh, Definitely will do. If anybody hits me up, I'll send you there. All right. Well, I do appreciate you guys having me on. Jarrett, it was nice talking to you and nice to see that camaraderie with Nancy Thompson and a little bit of Elm Street, you know, levity there. And thank you, too, Travis, for having me. It was a lot of fun talking to you and uh, being back on the show. And just let me know when you want me back. I'd love to see you do a Night Run Elm Street uh, episode, you know, podcast or, you know, radio broadcast. I'd love to see just one devoted to Night Run Elm Street. You know, it'd be awesome. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you know, we'll do the retrospective. We haven't done it yet. We've done Chainsaw, we've done Halloween, we've done Friday the 13th, but, you know, Nightmare on Elf Street's on the horizon probably next summer at some point or maybe even before then. So it'll happen. You know it will, and, and Blake will have you on again, uh, you know, for more shows along the way. So we'll talk to you later, Blake. All right. Thank you guys so much for having me. All right, Blake. Thanks, man. Good talking with you. Good talking with you, bro. See you later. Jared, I will talk to you on the Indie Power Rankings reveal tomorrow, but for any horror fans that want to talk to you and maybe discuss your discuss your list, throw out your Twitter real quick. Yeah, definitely. I uh, need more horror fans uh, following me on Twitter, and I'll follow you back so we can talk about horror movies. It's uh, at the one and only Jer, and that's the number one, not spelled out. So at the one and only Jer, and uh, find me on Facebook if you'd like to, Jared Polk, J-E-R-P-O-L-K. All right, you can follow us at Trav and Vic Horror on Twitter. You can, you know, go to our WordPress, Trav and Vic Horror.wordpress.com. Follow me on Twitter at Phenomenal TLD, and we'll be back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Jer, thanks again, buddy. I'll talk to you tomorrow. All right, thanks, man. Later on. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.